Spider, you monsters! I create! I create for a living! I'm a creator! I am a creator! This is my uniform! This is how I serve the common man! There's more to life than a little money, you know. Don't you know that? Can't stop what's coming. Ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity. And we'll interface with the FBI on this uh, dead body. No, no, God, no. We don't want those idiots bumbling around in this. Burn the body, get rid of it. Where would I go? Oh, for instance, uh, the Jolly Roger is quite livable. It's not expensive. The rooms are eminently habitable. <laughs> Nobody fucks with the Jesus. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Director's Club Podcast. I am Patrick Rapole. Oh, and I am Jim Laskowski. Oh. And we have two, dos, plural, guests mm-hmm. for this episode. So please allow me to introduce two of my favorite people. I hope One. they're wrestlers. <laughs> that's what you're putting on right now. One that I've known for... Holy shit, can you imagine a wrestling match if the guy introduced it? Let me introduce two of my favorite people. <laughs> That'd be great. I'm sorry. We're I love getting animated already. at the top of the show. It's one of my trademarks at this yeah. point. Uh, uh, go ahead. Okay, sorry, okay, all right. Um, so where was I? Anyway, let me introduce you to one of my favorites. A guy I've known for quite a while now. He's a poet, a writer, a musician, and a dear friend. Russ, welcome back to the show. Russ Woods. Russ Woods. I'm I'm Russ. Hi. Hey, everybody. You might remember Russ from way back when we covered Todd Haynes. That's like episode five or something. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, you will not be able to hear because something me and Jim discovered recently is that uh, iTunes only actually carries the, the last 50 episodes of our show at any given time. We don't understand this. We're we would... trying to figure it out. Um, we're trying to figure it out. But in the meantime, uh, it, all of the episodes are on our website. So if you want to listen to old episodes that aren't in our iTunes feed, you can listen to them that way. Yes. Anyway, uh, we have a second guest tonight. We that do! Would be uh, the man, you, you, you know him from his writing on the long tail ends. You know him from the high and lowbrow cast podcast. You, you know him. He's occasionally on the Cinecast. Uh, he was on our explosive and controversial uh, De Palma episode, um, in which his words actually got us one of our worst iTunes reviews ever. <laughs> <laughs> from, from someone who apparently didn't know he wasn't one of the hosts. Um, nice. We l- still love him anyway, uh, <laughs> Matt Gamble. How are you? I'm I'm quite good. Is was that episode really that controversial? Because I'm pretty sure I was right. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm pretty sure that you were pretty close to being right too. But uh, <laughs> uh, that is definitely it, it, it was a heated episode. Um, it was. Yeah, it was a lot of lot of yelling. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> and not not a lot accomplished. But that's so we fun. wanted to invite him back for. Uh, a pair of directors that I yeah. know he loves. Yeah, he does yeah. not like De Palma so much, but he does love the Cohen brothers. The Cohen brothers. The Cohen brothers. Who we're covering um, this week. <laughs> uh, we're going to be covering Miller's Crossing and Barton, Barton Fink. Fink. Barton Fink. I'm so thrilled to talk about this these is two why films. I'm here. You this want, is, this you... is simulcast on FM radio, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but do you want to tell uh, the listeners exactly how we came up? 
or how we decided on these two films in particular. Do you know how this happened? It involved a bar napkin. Uh, you know, Matt Gamble was in town over here in Chicago, Illinois, for uh, I believe a work conference of sorts, and uh, we got we had the pleasure of meeting him in person at a bar, and we sort of decided to write down um, all the Coen Brothers titles on a on a napkin, and we, all the ones worth consider. I don't think yeah. I wrote down like Intolerable Cruelty or uh, Lady Killers, right? So I mean, we just passed it amongst the three of us, and we. Each crossed out a title, or and then yeah, we, we we each took turns deciding yeah. which one we didn't think was worthy, and then the two that were remaining were Barton Fink and Miller's Crossing. Yes, so there you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any other business to take care of, Jim? Hmm. Well, I think it's it's worth noting and sort of thanking people for the oodles of positive feedback we got for the best of and clip show. You know, from uh, episode 50, I really think that uh, we got a lot of interesting emails and comments, um, mostly good. And also, I kind of wanted to apologize to uh, contributor and film podcaster extraordinaire, uh, the Film Giant podcast, Nick Wheatley. He provided us with a really good voicemail, but we got so drunk that we forgot to play it. Yeah. (laughs) During our best of. (laughs) So, um, you know, if you visit our website, maybe um, I'm pretty sure I'm just going to include it as a bonus MP3 download in case you're curious. It'll be there on the blog. And if you are curious about his top films, Film Jive did their own uh, top 10 episode. That was pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. Um, So I just wanted to impart that as well. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So So our apologies to Nick Wheatley, who got bumped, Matt Damon style. (laughs) <laughs> if you know the uh, that's a Jimmy Kimmel thing anyway yeah. uh, let's move on to what we watched this week yeah why don't we do that what movies did we watch this week Alphabetical Matt Gamble. Awesome. Uh, I've got two. Do you want me to do both of them? Or? Sure. Oh, what are, wait, 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 wait. What are, what are they? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it is. I watched uh, a documentary on Kurt Hackard's, uh suggestion, which may or may not have been a mistake. It is uh, Resurrect, Resurrect Red, the Mystery of the Toynbee Tiles. Oh, I saw that. 
Um, and then I also saw the return of the governor. Uh, that is the last stand. Oh, do both. Do both. Okay. Do I was both. just making sure that you weren't trying to sneak any talk of snuff films onto no. the show. We're very. <laughs> <laughs> we take a hard slide stance against snuff films. Oh, Unless you want to talk 8mm, that's fine. Yeah. Sure. Guinea pig. Um. Yeah, I mean, the, the one I watched most recently was Resurrect Dead, The Mystery of the Toynbee Tiles. Um, it's this documentary on these ceramic tiles. They're about the size of a license plate that have kind of cropped up primarily on the East Coast um, that have uh, four lines of dialogue that I'm blanking on right now. It's um, I can't even remember. Um but they reference it's, uh, something uh, like Toynbee idea yeah. in two thousand Kubrick's two Kubrick's ca- 2001, movies, 2001, Resurrect, Resurrect Dead, Dead on Jupiter, on Jupiter or something Jupiter. like that. Yeah, it's it's this weird <laughs> phrasing, um, and the documentary is focuses primarily on these three guys that are obsessed with these tiles that have shown up. Um, I think there's something like fifty or sixty of them that have shown up. Including four in various cities in South America, um, and kind of tracks these guys over the course of a, I think about a year or two is the kind of trying to figure out who created these tiles, when did they start doing them, when did they start appearing, um, and trying to find the person and talk to him. Um, and it's done in this kind of who done it mystery sort of style, uh, very very low budget. Uh, and uh, I think he played the festival circuit in 2011, uh, which I think is when Kurt might have seen it. And he is a huge fan of it. I am less than that. <laughs> um, so I, I uh, real quick, I assume these tiles are the work of some street artist, right? They're not. No. Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of the the movie kind of frames that it's more like this kind of reclusive madman that has these very anti, um, I guess, journalism kind of, or journalist feelings. Uh, a lot of them are kind of anti-Semitic. There's these additional inserts that he attaches at the bottom of the tiles that go into these weird rants. Um, and at one point, an actual large tile appeared in which it's just one ginormous rant and it is it's pure lunacy like it, it, they kind of frame it I, I don't know I think a sane person watching would view it as this is just some, some sort of crazy person that has come up with this weird idea and is plastering it wherever he can and these guys are seeing it more as I'm not sure like they they think this guy is almost kind of onto something it's it's kind of bizarre in, in, in their take on this man um so they're for the guy who's anti-Semitic. That's kind of yeah, like it's wow. really weird. And well, yeah, I feel they like kind of, they kind of ignore that. Like they kind of just are like, oh yeah, he's a little crazy, and just kind of move past it. And really, more want to find out like the what exactly the tile means. And I, I, at no point they seem to ever grasp the fact that there's probably no way they'll ever know what it means simply because the guy is crazy. Hmm. And, and um, I don't know, the movie has some problems in that it asks a lot of questions and doesn't really answer very many of them. And almost by the end of the film, 
it feels like, like you've gone on this giant journey and you're really no further than you've been at any point in the film. And, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's honestly, I, I, I was pretty disappointed in it, it mainly just because I, I, I think a lot of it is because Kurt built it up as this really bizarre kind of film and it's not, it's very straightforward. It's very dry and it's really these three guys obsessing over this crazy person. See, I thought um, that was the most interesting part of the film is that it's it becomes more about the filmmakers than it does about the subject they're making it. They it just they get so obsessed with it, like the guy sure. loses his girlfriend at some point and like yeah. they're and just I, so I desperate. That, I never really found any of those three all that interesting. The one guy that like dropped out of school at sixteen was somewhat interesting, but it never yeah, really like crust punk guy. Yeah, I mean, wait, I, wait, 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 hold on. So, I don't maybe maybe Matt isn't really selling. Like they lose their they lose their girlfriends and drop out of school to find yes. out who's behind. <laughs> yes, out, he'd already dropped out of school before this. Well, yeah, um, yeah, like, but he's. Like, like, he didn't discover this until he was in his 20s. He dropped out of high school when he was 16. Right, right. And he's kind of gone on these calls before, and that's kind of touched on, but it's never really... I mean, if you're talking maybe two to five minutes in the film where they kind of touch on him and what his weird kind of life has been, and then they move on. Is there any... And, and, what was I'm, I'm, is there any, like, suspicion of, like, a catfish sort of thing where since the filmmakers themselves are making the film that it's somewhat fictionalized or is that not not really no it's kind of laid out pretty early on that it's some kind of crazy person um they do some really weird like reenactments too that don't work very well Mm. um i I mean i I I I knew about the twenty tiles before i saw the movie i've seen one in philadelphia yeah Uh i mean the tiles are neat like they're really yeah they're really cool um, and, and I, I mean, I don't doubt that. And I think, but going to like the weird shortwave radio stuff that really doesn't, it feels like a, an odd tangent that do, they don't, they don't have any way to really strongly tie it back to the tiles that. What the, what's the shortwave radio stuff? Um, the, the, at some point in the early eighties before the tiles started peering, um, a person started going on, on shortwave radio and, created a kind of channel in which he kind of went on these similar kind of rants, and I think it was called the Toynbee Station or something like this. Hmm. Um, and then, so they then go to like a shortwave convention and randomly just start asking people if they've ever heard of this, and then suddenly they find this little path, and they kind of then come up to this decision that the guy that had the Toynbee tiles was driving around in his car that had no baseboards, which is how he could easily drop these tiles in these weird places, which is predominantly like highways and busy intersections. Um, and at the same point, he had a short radio in there, so he was like broadcasting while he was driving around. Um, and it really doesn't go anywhere with the shortwave because it's really just him ranting over a shortwave radio, and it kind of it's a digression from the tiles that doesn't really go anywhere or really kind of flesh out who this person is. By the end, they kind of talk about who it is, but you don't know the person any better than you did at the start of the film. You, you, at no point do you see who the person is. You don't get much of a backstory on who this person, even though they've decided who it is. Um, and it just it feels like a lot of spinning of, of wheels hmm. and not really progressing too much. 
much. It sounds like a case of the subject matter being more interesting than the actual documentary itself. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a very interesting documentary in here, and you mm-hmm. could have done one. I just don't think they found it. Um, I mean, it's, it's certainly, like, to me, when I'm watching this, it reminds me a lot of Winnebago Man, hmm. which I think is a brilliant documentary. That's what I was thinking which, of. In which they go and kind of find this guy... And then this whole other story happens on top of it that's even greater than they could have ever imagined. Sure. And it is never even it never even gets to the point of finding him. Like they kind of have an idea of who he is, <laughs> but it never gets any further than that. What what what's the greater story? I, I saw Winnebago Man. I was I did not like that film very much at all. What's the greater oh. story that they could have imagined in that? Uh, film? I, I mean, all they really did was just wanted to find out what this guy thought of of the tape and then you find they find the guy and he lies to him he knows anything about the tape and then you know I think it was a day later he's then calling back and telling him that he does know all about the tape and then it goes into this whole weird existential crisis that he's having up on this crazy fucking mountaintop and he's even more insane than I think they ever imagined he would be and that he's more affected by what had happened by this stuff than they'd ever realized. I I thought it just came off as a typical kind of old man to me. That was one of the disappointments of Winnebago Man to me was that it was just like, yeah, he thinks he knows a lot about politics and he's sort of ostracized, but like he just seemed like a very kind of normal person who just happened to be old. Uh I don't, I was not, I don't know. I, I was not a big fan of I was trying to think of what I missed in Winnebago Man because he's just like, you know, I don't, what is, what do you mean? I think, uh, I don't know. This isn't about Winnebago Man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, th- no, I was, think there's an existential theme in Winnebago Man that, that is not exactly what they were looking for at all. They were just looking on, trying to track what this guy did with the rest of his career and mm-hmm. if he knew about this pop culture sensation that he was. And he, and he, he knew kind of about the tape and he hated it. And it took him, and you know, through the progression of the film, he then learns to actually realize that people are not mocking him, that they actually love that tape and love what it brings to their lives. I don't think... Uh, I think I, there's I, an actual... I think he goes through an actual arc throughout the film. I would, I would argue I w- that... I wouldn't wrong. say it's as, as, as feel-good as you sort of portray it there. Like, I think he tries to then say things about, like, Bush... And like stuff like that, and then they go, "Oh, we don't, we don't give a shit about what you think about hmm. things. We just like that you got mad and swore. he's just the ramblings of an eccentric, yeah, eccentric like, old man." I don't know. I wasn't a big no, fan of that movie. It was all right. I liked it. But uh, back, back to the <laughs> toy and bee. Well, uh, Russ, right. you saw the film. You seem yes, to like yeah. it more. I, I, I watched it one day when I was really sick and cold in my apartment. And uh, it Loaded was up on something to keep me warm, and it was better than the <laughs> Wikipedia article about the Toynbee tiles, and yeah. that's all my opinion about oh, okay. it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, but, it's, it's really dry. Like, it could have been a lot more interesting, but it's, it's a very, very dry presentation. Yeah, it's not going to be like exit through the gift shop or something in terms no, of no. capturing no, outsider no, 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 no. art. I just, I guess I feel that the whole idea of, because there was also Shut Up Little Man, was that the I haven't film? seen that. 
I haven't uh, seen that. That looks terrible. Yeah, like I, I think this whole idea, and it's obviously it's not a thriving subgenre, but this whole idea of here's something crazy, let's find out who's behind it, is misguided because clearly the most interesting thing about this person is what the they child. make. They already know. Like, yeah. like, uh, like trying to kill yourself, trying to figure out where it came from. The answer is probably going to be a little anticlimactic and a little depressing because it's probably not an actual alien. It's probably some guy with mental problems, or it's and then it's going to be sad. Yeah, and it's <laughs> and that sort of arc, which is so predictable. It, it, I also that sort of thing lends itself to the kind of documentary that I hate, which is the filmmaker is part of the documentary. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah. And that that really bugs me. I agree. Um, I mean, it's been done well, but those are exceptions. Uh, and quick. then, uh, real real quick, how was the last stand? Uh, I liked it. It was far better than I thought it would be. That's, That's not to here. say it is a good movie. <laughs> it's it's a uh, it's a fairly forgettable film, but I had fun with it. it tonally, it reminded me a lot of Tremors. It's really dry. Tremors. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's yeah. got a very dry kind of sense of humor and kind of wink at the camera at all times. Um, and I, ha- I mean, I had fun with it. It's not, it's, it would be, I would call it like a solid rental kind of film. Yeah. Like you throw it on and have some fun with it, uh, which is far better than I thought. Uh, the, the director is the re- is really the whole reason why I watched it, which is yeah. Kim Ji Woon. Um, who did uh, what was it? I saw the devil, which I fucking love, and I love good, the bad, and the weird. Yep, which is another great one. And then he also did uh, a tale of two sisters, which is a very, very solid film. Mm-hmm. Um, and in general, the directing is pretty fun for something like this. It's 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 a little goofy and outlandish, and almost kind of a Looney Tunes feel to it, which which makes perfect sense considering kind of the style of films that that he tends to make, and it. It works really well. I mean, the whole thing has this goofy, small-town, um, Western vibe to it, and uh, it, it plays pretty well. So are you, it's, it feels like it's more of his film than necessarily an Arnold film? Yeah, it's- without a doubt. I mean, Arnold is 65 and showing it. He right. Can't, he can't really do much anymore, um, and they don't really force him to carry too much of it like it, it's there's probably 20 some characters in the film that they consistently bounce between and don't have anyone really shoulder load which i think is the smart way to go with it um yeah and it was worth it was, it was worth watching i had i had fun with it cool well, that's cool patrick and i are going to catch up with it next week probably probably hopefully hopefully <laughs> excited Russ, yes. What's on your mind? I'm curious. Uh, okay, <laughs> so, we don't want to know what movie you watch, but like, what, uh, what's what are you what's thinking been bothering about you recently? Yeah, oh, gosh. yeah. This what's is on a your therapy mind? session? Yeah. Uh, this is another episode of Stories of Our Lives. Oh, I didn't. Uh, this is a surprise. <laughs> um. So okay. So I uh, until like last week, I had not watched it basically any movie at all for like a month. Um. And I've just been reading a lot of books. But then, last week I watched Barton Fink. And then this morning I watched uh, Miller's Crossing. And then right after that, I was like, oh, I have to talk. I have to watch something 
to be able to talk about what I watched this week. So I watched uh, Indie Game the movie, which nice. I've been meaning to see, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I Basically, I feel like if you're any sort of artist at all, uh, you can watch that movie and feel mm-hmm. like you're a lazy piece of shit because you're not ruining your life for your art. Right. Uh, <laughs> I've been uh, I've been listening. There's a there's a great podcast called Idle Thumbs, and it's hosted by three guys uh, who are in the games industry, mm-hmm. and uh, it's really great because they talk about sort of what it's like to make games. You'd love and it, stuff Russ. And yeah. it's great. It's it's crazy. Like just how fucked up game production oh, and it's is, insane. where it's just like, where it's just the typical is, oh yeah, you're gonna work seventy hour weeks, yeah, and you're not gonna, and like it's always crunch time all the time. Right. The term crunch time means something totally different to video game programmers. It means like, like two hours of sleep a night yeah. and like mm-hmm. four weeks, yeah, not just like yeah, oh right. I only got two hours of sleep oh, last yeah. night, right? <laughs> yeah. So okay. I think we talked about indie games in the movie on our uh, Ridley Scott episode. Wow, your memory is good. I think, I think so. But it is, it's about the people who made... Because I'm a... I mean, I like to play um, sort of more... I, my, I like playing uh, video games and stuff. My, my style is more towards independent kind of computer games like this. It's about people who made Fez... Fez uh, and Super, Super Meat, Meat Boy. Boy, and is there a third one, or is it just those Well, two? the guy from Braid yeah, is Braid. in it, but it doesn't focus on him as much. He's more like a elder <laughs> wizard figure. My, my understanding is that's also how he is just in the industry. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they even talk about that. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, yeah, what uh, What sort of... You You've all, except me, have seen it, right? Yeah. Matt yes. Gamble, yep. I assume you've seen it? Yeah, I saw it. All right. Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, I'd played Braid before this because I have a friend who is a video game writer and very interested in, uh, independent games and stuff like that. And, uh, she was like, well, you should play Braid. And I played Braid and I thought it was really great. And as a, a writer myself, I was amazed with just like the writing of that game. And so I was really excited about that. And then I saw this and I was like, oh, they talk about Braid. And, um... I don't know how much I have to say about it. It was I just enjoyed it. It was good. And it was really interesting because I didn't know that much about video game development, and especially not about um, indie game development. Um, yeah. I thought it was good. Yeah, I don't know. No, I mean, pouring all your effort into yeah. something is there like that. Other than, yeah. Is there, would you say there's, other than the fact that fucking, like, developing video games is, like, is fucking brutal, is there, like, a real thesis to is it about because the indie games have in the past five years or so like really risen to a prominence between sort of xbox live as right. an arcade and steam sells like the idea of independent uh, independent game development is actually yeah. ha- sowing a renaissance the way that uh or not even a rent like it's uh, it's sort of the first sort of real push it's almost yeah well, you they know, talk. Like, I mean, that's the thing is like at one point in the movie, one of the guys says, "I just made in the last two hours more money than I've made in the last six years combined," <laughs> and like because they can act. It's one of the few. Th- I mean, there's a lot of art forms where people are doing things and like working really hard and making stuff on their own, but it's one of the few things where people are actually able to work hard and then make a shit ton of money. Yeah, right. <laughs> based on that, sure. Um, which is really crazy. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, no, I I thought it was great. I mean, I think uh, Sean mentioned this when we talked about it that it doesn't really get on like some sort of you know uh, high horse or preachiness about like trying to say that you know video game design it must be treated like you know seriously as an art form in like a direct way. It's just portraying exactly what they do, and you get to watch it unfold. And there's no like direct sort of thesis i don't think do you no, feel that way feel- do you feel that way matt that it has like a like a stance of some kind of, about indie game development or is it just really- um no i know i think it i think it takes a very matter of fact stance that yeah. indie game like game like creating a game is an art form and that at the end of it there's no discussion right. um which is kind of refreshing <laughs> rather yeah. than hearing you know, Roger Ebert bitch about how they're not in an art form, or Jay fucking Chile will do the same shit. Well, it's- <laughs> here's the th- here's the thing about, and I don't want to get into this because it's a dumb discussion. Here's the thing: video games as art is all, it's only semantics in every like in every working definition, like in every way that you talk about video games, in every way that you discuss video games and the development and what they do, mm-hmm. it's an art form. You talk about the work that goes into it and you talk about the authorial intent and you talk but the fact that it's quote unquote a game and no other game has ever been considered an art form, you can say technically, as a matter of semantics, video games are an art. But I feel like those arguments are only about semantics and exactly, and and I, and I would agree with that. Like yeah. I think I think to me it's not even a discussion. Like they they without a doubt are an art form. It's a living, breathing, changing art form. Very much, you know, almost like any sort of art installation that you would go with. It's not. This is not like a picture you sit and look at. It's something you interact with, and it's a different style of art form. And to try and dismiss it with just a simple, well, a game is never, you know, tic-tac-toe is not an art, is just kind of bullshit in my mind. I also, but, I, I, but again, it's hard to me to get mad because I think kind of the root of the reason these arguments pop up a lot is people want games to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think they are, regardless. I think they're they're making enough money and they're doing enough interesting things that people are talking about them seriously and that i i you know i don't feel the need to defend them as art or proclaim that they're not art like i feel like that whole conversation is just useless mm-hmm. and right because at this point games are taken seriously it as feel, an industry yeah. it feels like we're having the conversation where it's like comics aren't for kids anymore yeah yeah like yeah. i feel like <laughs> yep. that is the driving <laughs> yeah. force behind people wanting to have this argument is there are people who want to say oh games are all like most of them the big games are just people shooting you shoot someone in the face you shoot someone in the face and then people going no it's an adult thing and which is all missing the point of no like there's a like it's there's a ton of variety and you don't have mm-hmm. to and you don't need to justify liking a game you know like doom is the poster child for uh is the poster child for like games are just violent and mindless and blah like doom is great you don't have to defend doom as art doom defends itself doom is like a great fucking game and i just feel like i i feel like getting up in arms in any way about that argument is sort of missing the point. I think, I think whether or not 
you believe games are art, games are going to continue to go in more and more interesting places and narratively. Act yeah. like art. <laughs> yeah, and 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 the discussions about games are going to be exactly like discussions about art. I think the evolution of them has become really, really interesting to see over the years. Even though I'm not a gamer, yeah, and the, I like to view that in that documentary too. But do go, they do they go over sort of the history and like put it well, into historical context? I don't know. Do they really not not, not like not, not especially it, it, no. the 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 movie is more geared towards. Uh, at least the context that they use is the three different game developers and that they're in three different stages of creation mm-hmm. of a game. Like one is still in development, one is right here on the cusp of releasing it to the public, and the third has already you know, released it and gone to great critical and financial success. Yeah. And, and kind of how each one of them are now currently dealing with that, you know, that leg of this kind of triad. And it, it sticks to that. More than anything, it's very much a character study rather than examining like yeah, gaming right. as a whole. It touches on things, but it's very much, and especially about Ez and Super Meat Boy. Like the, the primary focus is those two groups. Yeah, um, and it goes into a little bit of history. Like they're fanta- like they're absolutely mesmerizing to watch. All three of them. Like you just you're riveted listening well, to that. Well, yeah, films about the creative process. Are, and even if you don't think games are art, right. they're clearly creative. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, like, it's still it's still an example of the creative process. Um, and I'm not a huge gamer, and I thought it was compelling. Yeah, so. yeah. The creative process is always super compelling. I actually, the, what I want to talk about, because I saw three movies, and I don't have a ton to say about. I saw, uh, um, I saw uh, Zero Dark Thirty, which I think is a very good movie. I don't think it would be in my top ten of 2012, but it's a very good movie, um, and. Uh, I think so. There's that. Um, I saw uh, Phantoms, uh, which is sort of a fun. Uh, it's it's horrible in the first forty minutes, but then towards the end it gets kind of crazy in a cool like '80s Italian horror kind of way, where the story is like incoherent in the right way to come off as surreal, other mm-hmm. than instead of just dumb. Um, and there's just a lot of sh- like weird effects going on, and you don't exactly know what the base. They don't like. They don't really work a lot in establishing the rules of the, sort of the force they're working against. So it just it's sort of nightmarish. I really like that last half of that movie. But was Ben Affleck the bomb? No, he isn't. That's oh. the weird thing. Ben Affleck has not been a good actor. Like he was well cast in uh, Goodwill Hunting. Like as sort of a dumb Boston guy, he's very convincing. But I don't think until recently he's actually been a good actor. Ah. Um, so that the the meme of Ben Affleck was the bomb in Phantoms, yo, which, by the way, is propagated by people who don't like Kevin Smith. So I don't know why <laughs> everyone, whenever Ben Affleck or Phantoms is mentioned, they have to reference that line from Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, but they do. Uh, no, yeah. I like that movie fine. Um, and then there's... Uh, and then I saw uh, Footlight Parade, which is like one of the best movies I've ever seen, but it's just really fun. Um and hysterical. So I just urge everybody. I to need see. to see some Busby. Yeah, Busby Berkeley. I, I talked about seeing Gold Diggers of 1933 back right. at the uh, Wong Kar Wai episode. I got a box set of Busby Berkeley for Christmas, and oh, he's the best. He's really great. So everyone should see Footlight Parade. I wanted to talk about Lucas Arts Adventure Games. Actually, is yes <laughs> what I've bringing it back. Well, is that what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to run through those really quick so I could bring it back to this. Because it's uh, an appropriate segue. I, more than anything, <laughs> I've been playing a lot of video games recently. 
Um, and The Walking Dead, which is a really good game by Telltale Games, it's almost more interactive fiction than it is a game game. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not really skill-based. It's more of a relationship sim where you're dealing with people and you have to keep everybody happy. Oh, shit. And there are horrible consequences depending on... And there's... That you can't avoid. You have to choose between the... You know... It's really interesting. It's really fun. It's way better than the TV show Walking Dead. I, so I, if you piss off your girlfriend, does she eat your brains? It's 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 pretty much that. It's, oh, wow. You're with a bunch of survivors, and it's... Because most zombie games are... You shoot zombies in the head, and isn't it fun to shoot zombies in the head? And you don't feel guilty about all the gore because they're zombies. Like, that's the base of most zombie games. This is actually like zombie movies because most of Night of the Living Dead is just people arguing about what to do, you know? And that's what Walking Dead the game is. It's you arguing, do we stay here, boarded up? How long can we stay here? How much food do we have? At one point, at one point, you have, you are given uh, like a candy bar, uh, an apple. And, and and you have to divide and something else and you have to divide three food items between seven people so you have to choose <laughs> who gets to eat so like wow. it's that kind of game it's really interesting really great and it had me thinking about LucasArts adventure games that I grew up with before the show me and Russ we were talking about Maniac Mansion yeah. which was sort of the first big LucasArts game um Fuck, how could I have not played something called Maniac Mansion? You gotta put the hamster in the microwave. You can put the hamster <laughs> in the microwave. Even in the uh, Nintendo version, you can put the hamster yes, in the microwave. Know. Man, that would really piss oh. off Richard Gere. There's something really great about... Because, Russ, uh, Matt, Matt, have you played... Uh, did you play a lot of adventure games growing up, these kinds of... Uh, yeah, I was a diehard Quest for Glory fan. Diehard? Uh, I don't oh, know Quest that one. for Glory is great. Yeah. What's yeah, that I love that series. Uh, it was Sierra games, like okay. and, like the King's Quest games. Or like, I was a total Sierra fanboy. What's the what, what is that? A is it a fantasy? Is it sci-fi? Uh, Quest for Glory is, is a fantasy, which each game like it's, there's five total games, and your character progresses through all five, um, and you can add it onto your character through each one. So basically, whatever you did in the previous game will actually directly affect your character in the next game. And I think they were one of the first ones to ever do that in terms of video games. Yeah, that's actually uh, that's what a lot of The Walking Dead is based hmm. on. Yeah, and uh, like each one had a theme. Like the first one had a uh, like they each had. A, I'm trying to think. The first one was very much like a, a uh, um, like Eastern European feel to it. A lot of mythology based on that. The second one was was kind of a Knights of Arabia feel. Um, and I can't remember the others offhand, but they, each game had its own particular magic and, and fantasy feel to it, and your character kind of progressed throughout all of them, and they were a blast. I loved them. Yeah, I this, as far as Sierra goes, I played King's Quest, yep, uh, five and six, I believe, um, mm-hmm. a ton. Those those were hard because the difference is like Sierra games you could you constantly died <laughs> like, yep. there was tons of ways to die <laughs> yeah and the Lucas Arts games they were they didn't want you to die um, so you're so it's just like the Lucas Arts games were also more humor based the worst mm. thing that would happen in a Lucas Arts game is you would spend an hour and a half wandering around clicking on things and nothing yeah. would happen yeah the worst yep. part of any adventure game is you have a certain number of I- uh, adventure games by the way 
I don't know how you really sum up the genre, but they're basically you walk around, you collect items, you can use them with different items. They're not skill-based. They're more logic puzzles. Strategy. And it's yep. about solving pu- – it's not even strategy. It's more mm. puzzle-based. Okay. Um, yeah, like Myst is kind of like the progression of the adventure game. Yeah, that was probably – Myst is probably the most popular adventure game, but I was a diehard like, LucasArts fan, so I played Maniac Mansion – I remember I went to my mom's friend's house, and her son had Maniac Mansion on NES, and that was the first time I ever played. And the idea of uh, I didn't know what to do, so I, I like picked up the doormat, and the key to the front door is under the doormat, yeah. and it's and that this high you get from figuring yeah, that out right. is just <laughs> so great, so great, yeah. And you're like walking around, and you get caught, and you get put in the prison, and then you have other people letting you out of prison. Like, oh, that that game's great, and then. I played Day of the Tentacle a lot, yep. which was the sequel to that. Um, the, I love Loom. Like I, I Loom is your shit. I'm like fucking obsessed with Loom for some reason. I don't know that. Just the, I think just the art in that game and the music it's just beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all the Lucas Arts games they had this thing called iMuse, and it actually was a system that they like a program that they made that like that naturally segues music from one scene to another. So Uh like, and when something happens instead of the current, cause you know, in old video games, it's like 30 seconds of music that just keeps looping for eternity. But instead of just cutting out one loop and starting another loop, they actually had a, had a system that would weave one thing into another. And it was like crazy complex and great. Um, And yeah, the music and all the LucasArts adventure games was great. And Maniac Mansion, and uh, and Day of the Tentacle are just so funny. There's like a lot of really good jokes. And, and Monkey Island. Monkey Island All is the, the funniest. Island yeah. is hilarious. Um, so yeah, I've been going back. I've been playing Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, um, which I never th- – I was thinking about this because I was trying to remember – I was trying to think like – I was thinking, is there any possible way they could do the Indiana Jones franchise without Harrison Ford? And I don't think they really could. I mean, they did Young Indiana Jones Adventures, but that was shit. But and but playing Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. I mean, he's animated, but the the voice is very clearly not Harrison Ford. It's a different voice. I totally buy into it, and it's really fun. Like you hop around the globe, and you're trying to figure out pieces of puzzles. And um, there, that game is really cool because there was a three way branching thing where. There were three different ways you could solve a lot of the puzzles, and uh, and which all resulted in like different endings. Adventure games are fucking great. Um, if yes. you if you don't play an adventure game, go on Steam. If you don't know what Steam is, just Google Steam. It'll be the first entry. Uh, download you know download Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Download The Walking Dead, something like that, and play them. Um, my girlfriend doesn't like video games. She tolerates me. Like I'll show her stuff, and she'll be like, "Oh yeah, it's cool." And then she'll, she doesn't care. Um, but like Walking Dead, she got really into the story, and she was really like getting stressed out while we were playing it and trying to figure out what to do. Like it's if you don't, if you think you don't like video games, you still might like adventure games. Yeah. So I, I got really into it for a while. This site Abandonia, which is like abandonware games and like a lot oh, of right, the, right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So, um, I found some 
some ones I'd never heard of before, like this one called Beneath a Steel Sky. That's great. Which I, is that game's amazing. So I haven't played it. So good. I've only I've, and then Flight of the Amazon Queen was another mm-hmm. one that was really really good. Um, I wish I could remember some of the names of them, but yeah, yeah. There's a ton of those on there. I've been trying to get Jim ever since he saw Indie Game the movie. I've been trying to convince him to download some some games. So I'd some, have some retro games that would be a little bit easier to. for I, me. I think because like I can't get fun. into the complex games and well, no. stuff like your Final Fantasies or whatever. Yeah. If anything, like the only puzzles I would want to solve is like trying to get you know Leisure Suit Larry laid again. Yeah. Just like right. I did when I was younger. <laughs> That's but a I did, good example. I, I did play like Police Quest and Space Quest. I mean, I those remember. Are, yeah, Sierra. Yeah, so you, I'm Sierra. Sierra. you played those Sierra, Sierra games. I definitely played those. But I just—it's been so long, and with my crazy schedule, I get weary about something that has I, I, an addictive I, I feel tendency. Like the influence of games like that on like people's senses of humor. Like, if you're seven and you play Monkey Island, that is that is <laughs> insane. Like, because it's it's very pun, very Money Python inspired, and it's mm-hmm. very uh, and it and it's very kind of surreal and silly and clever, like humor, like. That influenced me just as much as any movie I've ever seen. Yeah. Well, it was weird when you mentioned, because uh, I was watching SCTV at 7 and 8, and I oh, love yeah. Joe Flaherty There was a Maniac Mansion TV show in Canada. That's fucked up. I gotta see that. Matt Gamble, have you seen the Maniac Mansion TV show? I have not. <laughs> it's it's crazy. It's a multi... It's a, I mean, not multi. It's a single camera sitcom with no laugh okay. track. That take, where the main okay. character is a mad scientist and like it doesn't have a lot to do with the the game but it is I mean if you look on YouTube you can find like clips and episodes and stuff like it's kind of weird and ahead of its time and it was produced by Eugene Levy and David Cronenberg was a guest star in an episode it's nice. fucking nuts so anyway LucasArts Adventure Games that's what I played played this week Speaking of video games, I watched Anthony Minghella's The Talented Mr. Ripley. <laughs> and uh, That's about a guy who's really good at Frogger, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I, I'm, I know I saw this. This is one of those movies, again, that I'm, I saw it when it first came out back in 1999, and my memory was not clear on it at all. Um, and I was very curious to revisit it um, after recently seeing both the imposter and uh the informant (laughs) and i figured what an interesting movie to uh revisit in light of of seeing both of those movies fairly recently because i feel like in some ways the just the character um that uh, matt damon plays in the talented mr ripley is kind of an amalgam of those two people. Now I haven't seen the seen the film. What is what's it about? It's about um, this guy. I mean, it's, it's it's very Hitchcockian. I think we talked about this when I reviewed the movie Dead of Winter. That almost every director eventually wants to do a Hitchcockian type of film. And uh, apparently, the guy who directed The English Patient decided this was going to be it. Um, it's based on a novel by Patricia Highsmith. I want to say. Yeah. Um, and she did Strangers on a Train. She wrote that novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is really just about one of the most interesting sociopaths that I've ever seen portrayed in a film, and it's played by Matt Damon. And he really is just this kind of charismatic con artist 
who's re- got this incredible skill. He's just really good at impersonating other people, forging handwriting, just a, a great con man who's really lacking any identity of his own. He's unhappy with his own life. He don't know about his past. So he just takes on the persona of other people. Uh, and he winds up um, going to Europe and becoming really good friends with uh, with Jude Law and his uh, Jude girlfriend. Jude Law playing himself. Basically, being incredibly charming, as always. And he, he becomes friends with Jude Law and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. And sort of just cons his way in by saying he's somebody who, who, he's, who he's not. And, of course, there becomes a lot more murder and intrigue and... Uh, a lot of things take place that is re- really nerve-wracking at times. And it's interesting going back and watching this when you see people like, uh, you know, Kate Blanchett, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Philip Baker Hall. A lot of great people show up throughout this movie. And all throughout it, I'm just going, man, that Matt Damon. He's just like one of the best movie stars, and I can watch him in just about anything. And he cast to carry this whole movie and make you believe that he is this kind of like isolated loner. Mm -hmm. And he's really sort of like lost within himself to where he's kind of a leech. Does he have a a love interest in this movie? Well, I I would say that Kate Blanchett kind of walks in and out of his life uh, at different moments, and he sort of uh, has to deal with her accordingly, Um, not necessarily in the way you think, but just she is a figure that mm-hmm. sort of has to plays a big role in him being able to maintain his uh, forged personality, I guess you could say. I, I, I ask because um, one of my favorite things about Matt Damon is he, he instantly has amazing chemistry. He does. With, with every single actress he's put a, like you, you look at the sort of the date, the first date of him and Minnie Driver. Is yeah. it Minnie Driver in... Uh, yeah, Good Will Hunting. Good Will Hunting. Uh, or the the date between uh, him and uh, Vera Firminga. Firmiga. Firmiga in uh, The Departed. Mm-hmm. Or him in Adjustment Bureau. Like, he, he has instant chemistry with all his acting. That's yeah. my favorite Matt Damon Now, how thing. about this? Let me yeah. throw you a wrinkle here. Throw me a wrinkle, Jim. Yeah. What about Matt Damon and Jude Law? Because there what? is some, yeah, homosexuality. Yes, that's what's that's what's going on here. That's what's going on here, man. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Do they have good chemistry? They do. Yeah, it's pretty hot. It's Matt Damon. It's Matt Damon and Jude Matt Law. Matt Damon. Yeah, it's Matt Damon and Jude Law, man. Have you seen this movie, Russ? I saw this movie. When did it come out? Nineteen ninety nine. Okay, I saw this movie in theaters. Uh huh. I was. A freshman in high school. I remember very little. I remember my mom deciding maybe it wasn't a good idea to take me to the movie. <laughs> All right, Matt. Matt, have you seen yes. this film? No, I'm not. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a really dramatically complex film. Um, I think there's really. I get it mixed up with Meet Joe Black. No, <laughs> which was Brad Pitt's version. I would say if if there's one flaw that keeps me from like raving about it, it does f- pacing it does feel a bit long at times. Uh, but I think it again when you have a, an actor like Matt Damon at the forefront here, and he's so convincing in like 
he 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 really portrays and sort of like preserves this blank state exterior at all times and he's able to absorb the characteristics of the of of other people around him and you can sense this like really shattered interior and his like fractured psychology throughout that i think it's it's really interesting just to watch his sensitivity his confusion his vulnerability and like just this lost soul and he's really, really good in this movie. It's one of those early Matt Damon performances. I don't know if it got like the kind of attention it did. I know Jude Law got nominated for it, um, but I think it's 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 a really good Hitchcockian thriller um, that doesn't do a whole lot to call attention of itself. There's not like a lot of you know sort of what crazy Hitchcock movies. Is it like um, I'm Strangers on a Train? Really? I mean, it's it's kind of got that whole. Um, diabolicalness to it but it's not necessarily like two people plotting against in any way or it's really just one man and you focus on him trying to con his way out of crazy situations one very amusing one involving philip seymour hoffman who's kind of playing uh uh a really over-the-top character in this when it's really it's a lot of fun to see him in this as well uh i mean if you love these actors as well you should and um, I wouldn't say the director like brings anything fantastic cinematically to he it. He hasn't yet. been up to much in a long time. No, because I think he's dead. Oh, did he die? <laughs> <laughs> Who are we talking about? Uh, Anthony Minghella. He oh, did. he died in 2008. Okay. Yeah, he, did, uh, he did The English Patient, I think a couple of other things. Uh, cold, cold Mountain. Cold Mountain. Yeah, that was pretty good. Breaking and Entering. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those really sort of in good in t- intense sort of character studies that has a really ambiguous and kind of strange eerie ending to it that I wasn't sure how I felt about but um I don't know it's it's kind of this really interesting ambivalent movie that you sort of get to fill in the pieces as you as it goes on in terms of like why is he like this and I like those kind of movies it's it's really interesting it's a good thriller um, and if you, again, if you just want to watch Matt Damon really bring his A game, it's 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 here. So uh, I don't know. I just thought it was a, a really good, and I, I think I just have an affinity for movies about uh, liars and con men and people who are really good at um, manipulating those around them. That's why you love The Imposter so much. Well. <laughs> no, I know. You, just, I only bring it up because you have this weird guilt about not liking The Imposter. I don't have. You know, it seems like you, have, like it seems like you feel bad about not liking the imposter when you can just not like it. That's fine, but I, I don't dislike. I like it, just not as much as most people. Cool. Not as much as Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Yeah, yeah, that's a good movie about liars. <laughs> that's a good liar, movie. liar. Yeah, now, that's the best movie about liars. It has that twice right in the title. Right. Yeah. I don't know. There's just something missing from it. From liar, Matt, liar. Do you, what do you think about the imposter? I, I'll back him on this. I was not a huge fan of the imposter. Yeah, but how do you feel about Liar Liar? <laughs> um, it is it is substandard Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Okay. Well, I like yeah. the part where he writes on his face with the pen. Yeah, this pen is blue. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Some of the faces Jim Carrey makes in that movie are top 20 Jim Carrey faces. He's, he's a regular made. rubber face. I'm kicking yeah, my own ass. Yeah. Do you mind? Okay. Uh, speaking of Jim Carrey, Coen Brothers... What the fuck? He wasn't in any Coen Brothers movies. 
We're just really good at the segues today, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, no. This is, this, we sound so professional. Perfect, I give you a perfect segue. <laughs> I, I softball, underhand. You, 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 you shot it dead. You brought a you brought a gun to a softball. Game. <laughs> this metaphor is yeah, broken. Well, I got it. I this got metaphor it. is broken. All, All right. right, hey, hey, Patrick, what's the rumpus? Uh, maybe the <laughs> Cohen brothers. Cohen brothers. Cohen brothers. Cohen brothers. There's a film I really wanna see. Intolerable cruelty of Big Lebowski. John Turturro, Steve Buscemi, Francis McDormand, and George Clooney. Genre hopping, always witty scripts. If you want great American cinema, this is it. You never know just what to expect. All I know is I can't wait to see what they do next. Minnesota Jews, they know a thing or two. They keep on reinventing themselves in so many ways. But the way they always like to play with language means I want to watch them all. Combining thoughtful eccentricity, wry humor, arc irony, and often brutal violence, the films of these two siblings have become synonymous with a style of filmmaking that pays tribute to classic American movie genres, especially film noir and screwball comedy, while sustaining a firmly postmodern feel. Who am I talking about here? Why, it's Joel and Ethan Cohen! collectively known as the Cohen Brothers. After graduating from NYU, Joel worked as a production assistant on a variety of industrial films and music videos. He developed a talent for film editing and met one of Jim's favorite directors, Sam Raimi, who was working on a particular film known as The Evil Dead and was looking for an assistant editor. So he hired Joel. In 1984... The brothers wrote and directed their debut feature, Blood Simple, their first collaborative effort. They followed that up with a fast-paced, zany comedy called Raising Arizona. But then in 1990, something happened with their take on the mob noir gangster picture, Miller's Crossing. Let's check in now with the Directors Club crew to hear more about what they have to say about this remarkable pair of artistic visionaries. Hello, you guys there? So the Coen brothers made a big splash with Blood Simple. It was a huge critical success, and it was not a, not a huge commercial film, but it certainly put their name on the map. Ebert the and my dad loved it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone was talking about what Ebert and Jim's dad thought about Blood Simple. <laughs> and Raising Arizona sort of threw everyone for a loop because Blood Simple is so stripped down and so dark and... And such a tight thriller, and Raising Arizona is so silly and quirky and weird, and Blood Simple has a couple of quirky moments, but it's, it doesn't nearly have the humor that their later films were sort of known for. So, um, 
by the time the 90s, you know, the calendar flipped over to the 90s, I don't think people exactly knew what to think of the Coen brothers, other than they were clearly talents to be reckoned with. Um, I think Miller's Crossing may have hammered that home for people, that they were talents to be reckoned with who like to experiment with genre. Because while Blood Simple is a very uh, almost Hitchcockian, uh, you know, stripped down kind of thriller, and while Raising Arizona feels more like a like a screwball comedy, um, you know, Miller's Crossing plays with uh, two very popular film genres of the 40s. It's There's the gangster film and there's the film noir. Mm-hmm. And it melds them together effortlessly um, and combines it with, you know, the signature Coen Brothers' wit into something that feels unlike any other movie while still being very beholden to a ton of other movies that came like before Like Yojimbo. Yojimbo and uh, The Glass Key and Maltese yeah. Falcon and that sort of... Um, so Miller's Crossing sort of stood on its own, and any and I mean we'll get to Barton Fink later, but anyone who thought then they knew what the Coen Brothers were up to <laughs> probably had their world shattered when Barton Fink came out. But Miller's Crossing uh, stands on its own. It's it's kind of incredible. It you know it's it was uh, it's it's hard to put into words because it isn't The Godfather. I think it's every like it's every like it's it's well made and it's really and it's well put together. It's not a minor gangster film. It's not a B gangster film. It's not a gangster film unconcerned with philosophy, right? But it's not epic at the same time. Um, it's yeah, it's very singular. Um, what do you? Uh, what's your favorite part of Miller's Crossing, Jim? Wow, it's 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 hard because I think when I first saw this. After um, seeing something like Goodfellas, this was kind of a letdown for me when I first saw it way back when. I um, thought it was kind of slow and not as involving as I would have liked. And I felt like the pace wasn't what I would come to expect from a Coen Brothers movie. Hadn't only seen like maybe a couple of Coen Brothers movies at the time. There only have... a couple existed. Yeah. Well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> and... Uh, well, I mean, Blood Simple was was a languid film, I would think. It wasn't fast-paced either. But it just didn't grab me in in the way that I would have liked. And I don't know. I, I think the gangster film in of itself, even when I had saw it, just uh, worn out its welcome. And even today, I'm like... But I imagine when you first saw this, were you familiar with Ford? Because like, this is no, very much no. beholden to... Warner Brothers right. films of right. James Cagney of sure you know um, ah, I always forget well I mean again I wasn't Caesar. as appreciative of the film genres that it sort of evokes and I think now looking you know in, t- in terms of the fil- of the Coen Brothers filmography and how incredibly versatile they are and how they managed to Edward G. Robinson. That Edward was the D- other, that was the other seminal actor I couldn't remember. <laughs> oh, man. No, but I think they really display this really interesting awareness of, of so many different types of films and literature and just different texts and of the past and present. And I think it's really fascinating to me how they managed to make it their own with each and every film. 
And like you said, they, they still have a philosophy that plays out without necessarily like calling attention to it. It's played out situationally amongst the characters. And I think it's a sign of amazing storytelling. And first and foremost, I think the Coen brothers are great storytellers. And that's something that I, <laughs> every time I watch one of their movies, I'm, I'm kind of taken aback at how they managed to get almost everything right about the filmmaking process. With Miller's Crossing, uh, having rewatched it uh, recently, it's almost uh, another masterpiece from them. Uh, again, I think I wish I didn't feel the, the. I still think the pacing of it is not exactly what I would want it to be. Maybe it's just I'm conditioned to expect a faster pace from the Coen Brothers, but it, I don't think it's a. It makes it a lesser uh, film. Well, what? Okay, what fast... I mean, Raising Arizona, fast-paced. Well, yeah. Burn After Reading, fast But I would say at least I mean, half of their films have this kind of pace. I mean, Fargo isn't fast-paced. Blood uh, Simple isn't fast-paced. I think maybe it's just the feeling I get through it. I mean, maybe it's yeah. just, you know, that as I'm watching it, I'm not uh, feeling that rush and maybe like, you know, no, Fargo isn't fast-paced and certainly No Country from Old Men isn't fast-paced, but... Uh, as I'm watching it, I'm not feeling the light. I might actually, I, I would actually include No Country as one of the faster films. I think that oh, yeah? film is extremely tight, and uh, sure. yeah, I would, I would actually disagree with there. But yeah, um, but Russ, I, I think how? that I think that my favorite sequence might be the the Danny Boy moment, the, the shootout with Albert Finney. Really, I think, I think it's very mm. operatic. I think it's really beautiful. Um, that that sequence, I think it's really awesome. <laughs> that sequence annoyed the shit out of me the first time I saw this movie. Yeah. One of the things I, I realized about this movie this time seeing it is that it's actually a lot more heightened and surreal yeah. than I had previously given credit for. And the first time I saw this movie, that sequence stuck out like a sore thumb. It feels like a cartoon. It feels That's kind of why I it. Liked feels it feels like a Sam – well, I know you like it, but it it's totally – like completely – it felt completely wrong for me the first time. Like hmm. the to- Like it feels like a Sam Raimi movie. Like – the the part where a million bullets come out of the Tommy gun and the guy's just shaking around like crazy. Yeah. Like, that's a Sam Raimi thing. That's an Evil Dead thing. The guy's like, rah, rah. like that's that's nice. really silly. And I know you like that, but it 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 almost feels out of place. It feels less out of place this time I saw it, but it still is the most like it still stuck out to me. Hmm. Um, Russ, how do you feel about Miller's Crossing? Okay, first of all, <clears throat> how long is this movie? Do you know? Miller oh, has got to be like 108 I'll look minutes. it up. I'll look it up. 115. 115. Yep. It felt so long. <laughs> it felt so long when I was watching it this morning. And um, I guess it's just like... I didn't... Okay, so I went into it... The first two times I watched it, I, I turned it off. Yeah. I was not into it at all. And this time, I think I did appreciate it more than I had before. And I definitely um, saw a lot of the Coen Brothers th- sort of signature things in it that I like. The uh, the quirky dialogue, the um, really uh, well-arranged shots, the, the use of the music, and like the Danny Boy <clears throat> sequence. I really loved the... My favorite sequence was the... When uh, John Turturro is on his knees begging sure. for his life. The first time or second time? The In the woods? In the woods. Okay. Yeah. In the woods, yeah. That, That's great. That, and he just keeps saying this, I'm praying to you, look mm-hmm. in your heart, I am praying to you. That was, that was fucking poetry. Um, 
And I really liked that. I, I think... I don't know. For whatever reason, I didn't really lock into any of the characters uh, the way I have with other Coen Brothers films. And I really just... I think around the point when... Now I'm getting... I'm losing the plot. There's one point when I just totally was like, oh, the film's about over, and it was nowhere near over. And the rest of the movie, I was just kind of writing it out, waiting it for, it to, for it to be oh. over. Um, I'm kind of with you on the characters. So I want to get to that in a second. Matt, you, yeah, I think, are a huge fan of this film. Uh, yeah, Miller's Crossing is, is without a doubt in my top five all time. Um, I think it is an absolutely perfect film. Uh, in terms of writing, I think it is possibly the best written film ever made. Ooh. Um, it is it is so well crafted, uh, especially in terms of the writing. It, it is a very showy kind of script and story, and at the same point, while it's being so showy, is really masterfully creating this very tight knit noir mystery underneath that isn't really fully revealed until the very end. Um, I think it's filled with absolutely truly fantastic performances. It's beautifully shot. Uh, it's it's probably the Coen Brothers movie I watch the most frequently. It's something I watch probably at least once, if not twice a year, uh, and get lost in it every time. It is it is an absolutely fantastic film. Now, uh, I I really I I was not a huge fan of this movie the first time I saw it. I liked it more this time. I really love how they're not afraid to put symbolism up front and center. They're not afraid to really make you notice the hats. It's not yep. that mm-hmm. kind of movie that you yeah. read arguments online about, oh, the hat means... And you're like, what? That's not what the movie's about. No, this movie is about this character wandering through these situations and being sort of thrust uh, you know, in these very you know tight and horrible sort of tense moments and about sort of what it means to him. My biggest problem, honestly, with the film is that the main character is a cipher. Um, this is yeah. a, I've now I've, I've I've read defenses of the fact that he's a cipher, in as far as both this film and uh, um, the man who wasn't there, the uh, the sort of made-for-TV movie the Coen Brothers did with Billy Bob Thornton. But both films, it's really hard to get invested, um, invested in the characters. When the main character is a cipher, you don't know what he's thinking. You don't know if he's in love with Marsha Gay Harden's character. You don't know that he, this whole time he was doing this thing where he was pitting two sides, you know, against each other, and he was double crossing and triple crossing and all that. Uh, like, and that really, and not knowing where you stand is, I feel, a detriment to the to the tension because uh, you don't. Because you don't know exactly how nervous you should be at any given point. You don't know if he has this situation figured out or not. Um, that being said, everything about this movie is so amazing. The script is just goddamn incredible. The Coen brothers have a really great way with words. And beyond the sort of more obvious... Uh, I would almost say it gets a little irritating at times. The sort of love that they have of 
40s uh, crime movie in film noir slang. What's the rumpus? Uh, yeah. Like the, <laughs> I mean, I think that works. But uh, uh, eventually, enough characters have said, what's the rumpus? <laughs> <laughs> that, you, that it bothers me. But uh, no, like the, the script is so great. No line of dialogue is perfect. Um, no long dialogue isn't just like perfect. Like moments that are already tense. Like uh, when uh, – uh, shit, what's his name? Um uh, when Eddie Dane shows up um, to when Dane shows up and he's threatening Marsha Gay Harden's character and then he kills those two guys and he has the gun to the guy's head and he has that great line about like why 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 would I believe that you wouldn't kill me right if I told you and he goes because then I wouldn't get to kill you if I turned yeah. out you were lying to me like everything about that character and everything it's just perfect I love this I love the script um, it is beautifully directed uh it's very contained in that way i think that's yeah. what's really really interesting about a lot of their films too i mean there's just this sense what do you, of what do you mean by contained like i just i think that the worlds that they build these characters inhabit i think it's just it's it's sort of markedly different from other films and yeah you know i mean it's like you said earlier i mean it, it doesn't have that epic sprawling feel of something like the godfather would have had and i i don't know i mean i think like the lead character has this sense of uh displacement within him you yeah know? what uh, matt what do you, how do you feel about the main character of the film um i th- i think he is a it's a character and a performance that is really designed uh to show itself and how great it is on rewatch like this is the movie you were almost required to watch more than once to get mm-hmm. I mean there's so much plotting there's so much going on and there's so much that you're left in the dark about especially the first time you can get lost really really quickly and easily and for me the enjoyment in that character is as you kind of realize on your second or third or however many rewatches how much is he really does have a handle on of it how much it is manipulation how much of it is sheer dumb luck um <laughs> And it, 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 the film has this element of chance that it allows the main character to have that a lot of films wouldn't really take that risk with. That, yeah, we're going to hinge pretty much the final act of the film on his second time into the woods where he has absolutely no control. And, yeah, it, it could turn off audiences, but we're going to go with it. We're going we're gonna to absolutely break down this main character and leave you there trying to figure out does he know what's going on? And once you do realize he doesn't, you know, is that something he can overcome? Is that something moving come through with? Is, and are there... I don't have a problem with him being a cipher. I think it's when you have so much other parts of the film that's so showy, that makes him more of an anchor for this film that kind of rotates all around him. Are there are there clues earlier on that maybe I just missed that 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 the body they do find the second time they go into the woods is Mink or or is that just you only find that out later in the film? Because um, I think Bernie put it there. Is that Mink is missing and they haven't seen him. There's nothing like this movie very rarely outright tells you what is going on. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is hidden in all the vernacular that you that is really like it's hard to understand what they're saying the first time you watch it. You kind of have there's a rhythm and a feel to it and you kind of. The more you watch it, the more you realize, you know, there's three love triangles going on in the course of this film. 
Mm-hmm. There's this whole other weird, you know, tailing of Ver- Verna that's going on. There's this weird kind of back and forth with the police chiefs and all that kind of stuff that's going on. And and it's it, the the movie is very very careful in when it shows its cards, and at the same point, it's waving a bunch of other cards in front of you. It, it really reminds me of a magic trick. It's yeah. it is very much getting you looking one way when all this other stuff and you know it's. It's, a, it's very subtle, too, in the way it presents these things, like... Basically picking your pocket with its other hand. It's, 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 it's a kind of writing that's just not really done in film. Yeah. Like, well, I, I should say, like... a lot I, of films that do this. That, I, think, that, I think that this kind of writing is actually what, like, old film noir is. Like, if you watch yeah. The Big Sleep... Yeah. Like, trying to keep up with the plot in The Big Sleep is so, like, just impossible. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you like, have to pay There's attention. a lot of, like, that's definitely the, the film noir aspect of it, which is just, wait, what's going on? Who's double-crossing who? Why? What? Yep. Like, yeah. you've got to remember so many names and you got, and just very vague references I made and stuff. A, I made a point to watch it with subtitles this time. Oh, yeah, yeah. To same. try mm-hmm. to make sure I was getting everything step by step. Um, how do you feel about the fact that this is um, so surreal and about sort of the symbolism of the hat? Do you have – I mean imagine if you've watched this a number of times, Matt. You've, see, you've, you've developed a theory um, of the hat uh, or of, of what it stands for. Um, what, do you th- what do you think about the hat? Uh, um, I think there's a lot of ways you can read it. I think the Coen's have – Pretty much admitted there's nothing, there's no logic behind it whatsoever. They just like the imagery, which <laughs> seems like something that, I mean, that seems like a very reasonable explanation from them. I think it does really fit with the idea that that Gabriel Byrne or Tom is kind of getting thrust into stuff and as he has as little control as he does have control going on. Um, and the quest to get, get the hat is as much. This, you know, it's his Maltese Falcon kind of thing that they just kind of nestled into the storyline. Um, and for me, I, I get a general feeling that it's there to try and confuse viewers more than actually have any substance to it. It's it's a misdirection kind of play, uh, of which there's many in Miller's Crossing. Really? You, you, yeah. Hmm. I feel like it's used. You really think it's just misdirection? Well. I, like, like, I, I, I think it's. I think it's. I kind of believe them when they say there's no meaning really behind it. It's, well, very, it's very showy. It's very much. I mean, they. I don't know how many times you changed that goddamn hat. Probably twenty times. Like it's not. And it's hardly the only hat references without in the film. It, it very much to me. It really does feel like a multi-fucking. It is. It is a. Um, it's there to try and get you to focus on something when there's really other things that they don't want you to be paying attention to. And why don't, but I guess my, my question behind that is why don't they, because if a film's already confusing, why wouldn't they want you to focus on it? What, what does that um, achieve in the film? I, to me, a lot of Miller's Crossing is very much the Coen's showing off. It's very much them going. Matt, you there? Yeah, we eat. That's cool. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, you kind of cut out for a second. Sorry. It's uh, the Cohen saying me, what? We lose, I back? You're back now. Okay. To me, um, Miller Crossing to me is very much the Cohen's kind of showing off in that Blood Simple is a very, very tight-knit, well-constructed story 
Raising Arizona is this very goofy, quirky, kind of bizarre film. And then they come out with something like Miller's Crossing, which it's very much, you know, you've seen what we've done, and now we're going to really crank it up and add, give you both of these full barrel and really show you what we're capable of. And I, I don't think, like, I know the movie was fairly well critically received. I think it was, from what I understand, it was kind of a bomb mm-hmm. yeah, at the it, box office. And I think this, I think Miller's Crossing, in terms of the Cohen's filmography, I don't think it's ever really gotten the respect um, like Fargo did. You know, Barton Fink came right after this and that. The movie critics just lost their shit over. Um, or even, like, a lot of their more recent stuff. You know, A Serious Man, A Country for Old Men. Um and I think Miller's Crossing is every bit, every bit as good. It's it's a much much showier. I think it's a much more difficult film to pull off in, I, in what they're trying to do. I guess I feel what I feel is, I, well, I mean, I will get to Barton Fink in a second, but I feel Barton Fink. Uh, they have also said that that there's no real answer to what's in the box. There's no real <laughs> answer to what exactly everything is a symbol for. But what it does as a film is it. It, it's it sort of puts you off guard and it makes you more anxious and it makes you sure. more on edge and it gets you thinking and it gets you hyper focusing on things and noticing all the things that are wrong yep. uh, with the film by making it surreal and that's sort of why <laughs> right. that film succeeds because it's surreal. I I guess I don't see the same thing being true of Miller's Crossing and if you do believe that it's just them showing up like. And I guess I don't find that endearing. I feel I find yeah. that to be a, that's very off-putting to I mean, me. I feel like I feel like the hat is is primarily like an artistic flourish. Like this is something yeah. we're going to weave throughout it, yeah. and whatever people want to make of it, they can make of it because yeah. it's not. You know, I mean, I don't think. Honestly, I don't think most filmmakers really sit down and go, "Okay, well, this is the theme, and, and I this yeah, is yeah, what yeah. it means when we do this." I don't, and this I, is and the I don't code that this plans out. I don't ask that filmmakers have a one because you know. Surreal, no, I think it's great that they don't do that about, because that would suck if they did. It's not about creating a puzzle to be right. solved, but it has. It should function as something, and it, I, I don't think it has to though. I think they can have. I, I think that a lot of their ideas is that. I mean, this is kind of recurrent in a lot of their films where they will give you an object and let you, let the audience member decide what they want to represent. And yeah. so because of it, the film becomes more personal to each audience member because it then is defined by them and their experiences. I think oh, that's probably one of their sense. greatest I think, strengths. I guess, okay. that's, that's the, I guess that's the answer I wanted was sure. that's what it does. <laughs> yeah. I, I just wanted yeah. to know if it doesn't have a specific meaning, then what is it? And I mm-hmm. guess it's I mean, like these realistic objects embedded in this artistic sort of it's can- just, canvas. It's the peak, it's, you, you think it's to, to pique the audience's interest? Yeah. Well, like, yeah. like poetry people, like they, they always talk about like, like a poet shouldn't know most of what he's writing about until like five years after he's written it. <laughs> because <laughs> you're like just putting shit in there and where it comes from somewhere inside you and it's related and you know that it is in your head somewhere, but it's just like coming from this unconscious thing. And I think that's what that kind of flourish is like I recognized that when I saw that I was like oh that's awesome I don't know what it means they were attracted to the hat they were attracted to the hat as an image and the idea of someone losing their hat as an image they didn't know what it meant themselves but they found it compelling enough to put it in there Mm -hmm. idea of this character and including like just a protagonist talking about an anxiety dream about a hat 
I thought, well, that's got to mean something than other than just I guess the him talking is, about a dream. In all other aspects, the character is a cipher, and therefore, like his anxiety doesn't yeah. really read very well. I think yeah. that was that was one issue I had with it is like, especially like when you get to the end and she's like. Uh, uh, what, what the Marsha Gay Harden character is like is like you have no soul and it's like I haven't even been thinking about this guy's soul I haven't even been thinking of him like as a person he just yeah. drifts through things I've been thinking about every other character as a character but, but maybe that is what you have no soul means is well. that he isn't he doesn't have a personality he's I, I, I mean I don't feel like that's what the movie like for example, David Mamet makes movies about people who have have sharpened themselves down into a mm-hmm. fine tool and the second they try to define themselves outside of what they do and and being effective in that capacity, mm-hmm. then they're punished for yeah. it. Like that's yeah. what, and I don't feel that's what this movie is, but I think I mean I don't know. This there's a I lot I love about this film that isn't about that, and I don't want to make it seem like that that ruined my experience. Like Oh no. I love that of all of the nineties film like there is I, I feel almost an un unreally unreally explored thing that the 90s had so many movies both mainstream and indie that took place in like the 40s and 30s yeah there's so many films uh of that era that that took place in the 40s and that it's it's kind of odd and i don't know maybe someone has written about this but uh i think of all of them this is sort of the one that most distinguishes itself of not being necessarily a 90s version of the 40s and not necessarily being beholden to the facts of the 40s. Are you like, trying to say that the Dick Tracy movie isn't a 90s version of the 40s? The Dick Tracy is. This isn't. This isn't Dick Tracy. This isn't, and this also isn't Radioland Murders where it's trying to be a screwball comedy where it's right. trying to be super 40s. Um, I don't know. Like, I really, the aesthetic of this film is super appealing. Even... Yeah in the fact that I watched sort of the first release DVD of it and both this and Barton Fink have pretty bad DVD transfers and I regret not seeing them on Blu-ray but uh, they're just beautiful I love the aesthetics this was uh, shot by Barry Sonnenfeld this is the last one mm-hmm. uh, of their film movie he did as a cinematographer I think yeah yeah I but, watch everything on Netflix or VHS yeah yeah so <laughs> Well, I just I, li- I just like that it's not very showy. That the focus is uh, is on the actual you know story too. Well, it's I mean it's extremely I, showy. I it's think just... it's a ridiculously showy film. Both how oh, it's yeah? shot, how it's told, yeah, through hmm. everything that's spoken. Like this is almost I, as showy. Can, as can I tell you guys Cohen the most? Can I tell you guys the most surprising part of this movie to me? The movie that I like the the part that I was shocked that I didn't remember this because it was just so bizarre. Um, was the the scene where the Dane is killed and there's just that guy. By the way, who is one of, one of the plot elements I didn't get? Who is that guy? The the sort of the guy. He's who, the guy taking the fall in the fight. Okay, so he's the yeah. boxer, right? Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, the boxer. Okay, Drop so that Johnson. guy just like screaming randomly and the camera Raimi style zooming in on his face and oh, then sure. the guy's oh, stopping screaming, the camera <laughs> zooms out and then later he starts screaming again. Is like that whole scene is just <laughs> the only reason it exists is to create this bizarre, surreal nightmare <laughs> and it's amazing to me that the first time I saw this I didn't pick up on, oh yeah, this movie isn't down to earth. Like this movie is yeah. just as crazy as any of those. And has a very abrupt cut. 
too, which I liked. I feel like I'm liking the middle the movie of the through this discussion more yeah. than I did when I watched it. Well, <laughs> maybe it's what Matt said. You have to watch it a couple times, and you have to really abandon expectations yeah. of what a gangster film is, of what yeah. a yeah. Coen yeah. Brothers movie is, of my, what a... My yeah. favorite anecdote involving Miller's Crossing involves a row three thread where we started talking about it, and about... I, I swear it was at least 100 comments in. Kurt actually realized that the Dane and Mink were gay. And, had, and he'd seen the movie about five times. <laughs> and he had no clue they were sleeping together or that Bernie Bonbom is the reason why they were having these issues. That that was this other weird homosexual love triangle within. Yeah, wow. Well, and and Bernie and one, Mink are cozy as on, lice and it ain't just with business. That, this weird little thing. <laughs> Right, the, and I think he immediately hand, then and went and rewatched the film, and he's like, "I don't know how I never even saw it. Yeah, like it was yeah. staring me plain in the face." On the one hand, it kind of plays coy, like a '40s film where mm-hmm. right. it, it won't. Imp- but on the other hand, this boy. On, but on the other hand, Bernie explicitly says that uh, that his sister tried to have sex with him, which yeah, is the kind of him. weird thing that would never be in a '40s movie. So, yeah, <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, again, I love those are the sort of details that also would appear in like film noir, where you're just like, oh, like it's a lot more fucked up. It's almost like um, uh, a touch of evil, where you where the introduction of those gangsters who are doping up uh, 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 Omega Man, a Charlton Heston's Heston. wife, yeah. and the and the woman's like, I want to watch, and it's this sort of introduction <laughs> of amorality that totally changes how you look at them. At the world of the film, uh, I love that. Can I say the other? I think my other favorite moment from the movie was the um, the scene when he hits the guy with the chair, and the guy just goes, "Jesus, Tom!" Yeah, like, walks out of. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, like that. That was the Coen brothers. That was fantastic. That's mm-hmm. the it's that and that's that's where the Cohen brothers live. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah, in yeah. That, They're going and here's something that actually I think I could say. They've done film like in their recent films. They don't do as much. They defy your expectations like willfully yeah. at every turn. They want to set you up to not expect what's going on. You don't know like you really the first time you see this movie, you really believe Bernie when he's crying and he's pleading for his life in the woods. Mm-hmm. Like John Turturro does such a good job, and then the second you see Bernie, you feel just as betrayed as Tom does. You're like, what? No, you. He did a. I can't believe you're like. Uh, and I feel like they're like if you look at a movie like a serious man, like all, every character acts the same the whole way through. You look at a movie like uh, True Grit, like there's not a lot that really defies your expectation. Mm-hmm. You know what's going to happen from right. start to finish. I it's almost something I feel like they've lost. Where you know movies, I don't think Fargo is one of their greatest movies, but even though it's one of their greatest successes, but even that movie is like just you like Consistent. constantly are being like, wait, what? He sh- he killed Steve Buscemi. Like no, they're part. This is crazy. Like you don't know what's going to happen next, and that's one yeah. of the. Well, the, I mean, burn after reading. Burn after reading is just crazy balls. I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll talk about burn after reading later. That's one of my personal favorites. Yeah, because that's all that. Mm. But I think I don't. I think it's because they dedicate the whole movie to just that. Whereas, mm-hmm. whereas Miller's Crossing has a very. It has a specific thing it's doing, but at the same time, it's doing it in ways that surprise you. Mm-hmm. When Burn After Reading goes darker and darker, it just keeps going darker. It's not like out of nowhere stuff happens. It's, yeah. 
it's it, like when uh, Brad Pitt gets killed in Burn After Reading, you're not like, how could they kill Brad Pitt? You're like, of course, this movie is completely pitch black in its tone. And yeah. of course, Brad, you know, I don't know. That's that's one of the things I, I've learned, like, I really appreciate about early Coen Brothers movies um, as opposed to later ones. They're constantly keeping you guessing. I, I feel like a serious man keeps you guessing. No, serious man, I think, is the least... Really? Serious man, like, every character... It, to a point, like they they turn that into a game where his cut where his brother's always in the bathroom. I'll be out in a minute. Like they turn that mm-hmm. in a game. Like they they play a game of choruses where mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. fact that characters act the same becomes the oppression and the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I feel like I mean yes, it keeps throwing in new things to make things worse, but it's so steady and it's just the way it tightens pressure on the main character. Yeah. Um, a serious man is not very surprising. Uh, whereas something like maybe we should go on and talk about Barton Fink. Does anyone else have anything else they want to add about Miller's Crossing? Um, I really, I really like Miller's Crossing. It's not. It probably it may be in my I, top. Five. I like it. <clears throat> I like it more and more every time I watch it. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I tend. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of true of almost all Coen Brothers films. I yeah. think they they are certain directors that reward rewatches and reward fandom that there's always I wouldn't say Easter eggs, but there's always stuff in there that you kind of learn and, and you you have a better sense of the tone of the film and kind of the way it's gonna flow. Um especially with how much they change from film to film that I think it really it really works the more you watch the films over and over again. Mm-hmm. I I liked uh, Hudsucker Proxy less the second time I saw it. <laughs> I was I was really blown away by the momentum of it the first time, and then it just felt really empty the second time I saw it. Yeah. Um, but uh, how about we get to a movie that's not empty, but that is fucking dense, and that would be uh, Barton Fink. Yeah, it's really interesting that we chose this as the second film, because this was the film that they wrote while experiencing difficulty uh, during the writing of Miller's Crossing. And um, soon after they completed Miller's Crossing, they began work on uh, Barton Fink. And uh, it had its premiere at the, uh, the Cannes Film Festival in uh, 1991, where it sweeped. It won the Palme d'Or, d'Or? <laughs> Palme d'Or, and, uh, as well as Best Director and Best Actor. And it was critically lauded all around. And I think... It was just one of those movies where everything, all the elements came together so beautifully. And it's, I remember the first time I saw it, I I couldn't make heads or tails of it, but I loved it in the way that, uh, you know, I loved kind of David Lynch's films. But here you had, you know, something to grasp onto far more than just dreamlike symbolism and kind of just... Uh, you know, just surrealist imagery. He had really strong characterization once again, but also the world of Hollywood contrasted with, uh, you know, Broadway, obviously, in the beginning, and just the idea of this character um, sort of wanting to relate to the common man, but then once he's um, interfaced and with the common man, he can't communicate with them. And I think that's really fascinating. Like, you know, a character like John Goodman comes into the room with him 
and he tries to have a dialogue with them, but he keeps talking over him. Like, a lot of this is about... I could tell you stories. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> just like, he, he just doesn't have the right social skills throughout this entire movie, and the sort of disconnect he experiences throughout, and the sort of mental breakdown he experiences, and the fact that the ho- hotel basically just represents his mind and hell simultaneously. And I like the fact that, you know, uh, the Coens were sort of influenced by some of uh, Polanski's films and obviously, like, uh, you know, the Kubrick's The Shining, but there's a lot going on in this movie that, again, like we mentioned, you watch it more and more and you pick up on a lot going on. I think it's uh, their most terrifying film. It really creeps into you in a way that few films have in my lifetime. I think I think what sort of separates this from a lot of surreal sort of like the films mm-hmm. of David Lynch and stuff yeah. is that it's so crystal clear. Mm-hmm. You do not know what every sim- every symbol means and you do not know exactly if this is hell, if this is supposed to be a representation of hell, but the in every single there's not a single scene perhaps at the sort of the very end where you don't know exactly how you're supposed to feel. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that's sort of the I think that's sort of the genius of this film is that it's something where you you don't know what's happening, but you know exactly how you feel about it, um, as opposed to something like David Lynch, where it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, yeah, there's just I, constant I ambiguity. I, I think the idea of Barton Fink sort of interrupting uh, John Goodman's character, Munt, I guess, or he had a different name. Uh, uh, Charles Meadows, Charlie, yeah. Charlie Meadows. Yeah, um, I think that's really interesting. I think because one of the, one of the aspects of the Coen Brothers that I haven't talked about yet that I, I've seen them criticized for, and I in rewatching their films, I kind of agree with is they are very nasty towards anyone they view as dumb. Like they <laughs> they go out of their way a lot to portray like country bumpkins as just like annoying, aggravating people who just stand in the way of characters who are trying to accomplish I don't, I don't really think that's their opinion. Like, to me, I get it as they, they have a an aversion to innocence, and I think they kind of kind of link, you know, idiocy, I guess, almost, with innocence. Um, and I think they tend to kind of almost universally kill those characters in their films. <laughs> no, I mean my my idea is I don't really think the Coens um have this kind of or don't like dumb people or idiocy or however you want to take it as they they have this kind of aversion to innocence and I think they feel that kind of goes hand in hand that they that the characters that tend to come to the most harm in Coen Brothers films tend to be very innocent hmm. and almost always they are portrayed as very either naive or probably not the brightest bulb on the tree. Um, and I think that kind of goes with the Cohen's kind of worldview that there's not that this kind of innocence doesn't really exist and really has no place in their films. Um, so they almost always try to find a way to exercise it. Um, and I, I think I can see why people would think it's that they don't like people that are stupid, but I, I don't really, I think, I think their feelings on it are far more complicated than that. I think I, that's a very simplistic way I, of, of putting it. I think I, I do think it's complicated because I think they realize I, I think they realize they have these feelings and in movies like Far, like the end of Fargo and in yep. films like this, the way Barton Fink is depicted, 
it's almost them dealing with those feelings. But I still think they have those feelings. I, th- I mean, it's not just who comes to the most harm. It's just the way that so many people and so many of their films are just like so much. The humor comes from the mocking depiction of people who are out of like everyone who isn't like the the main six characters in No Country for Old Men is just this dumb bumpkin who's just like, oh, like, I don't know what's going on. Like, I'm kind of like. I think they mockingly depict and they derive a lot of humor from mocking these kinds of people often. I mean, look at, look at, Oh brother, where art thou? I mean, the one guy that I think is treated as, you know, he thinks he knows everything, uh, but really he doesn't. And everyone is actually smarter than him is the guy who thinks he's a not country bumpkin. And he's he's trying to be sophisticated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm And it's the fancy smart pants, smarty pants guy that uh, is is really like doesn't know what's going on, and everybody else seems to have some sort of better idea. Sure, but I think I mean you have the same thing in like Burn After Reading. I don't think they really negatively depict Brad Pitt's character. I think they're pretty loving in him. They just make sure to eliminate him at the best possible moment for the greatest effect. Like I don't I don't really ever see them having this kind of really negative feeling towards it. I I just think they they have this view in which well, I guess I'm not quite sure the best way to put it. Like they just they they're very uncomfortable with having characters like that in their films and I think a lot of it has to do with that they feel like they're not really they don't really fit in they they stand out a lot and there's and too often i it may they may view it as like a detriment to what's to what this the tale they're trying to tell i i just i just feel there's too many characters that are just being mocked for it to not have- yeah but they mock i i the thing is they mock everybody i don't i don't think they really it's not you know- i mean barton fink as much of an asshole as he is and as as he is smarter than almost everyone and he's mocking people that are stupid he might be the biggest idiot in the whole film like right. the Cohen's like mar- layer they mock right. well, that's, like that's, fast that's, talking that's, assholes as much that is, as they yeah, exactly. that, but that is that was my yeah. initial point I, I think, that this yeah, film my is feeling is dealing if, with that. if they feel like someone is is an honest depiction of who they truly are i don't think they really yeah they mock Brad Pitt and burn after reading but not really like every character in raising arizona yeah i mean but those characters all at least feel they feel developed and they feel at least like emotionally honest for for an audience it doesn't feel like you're making fun of them so to uplift you it's they're just in ridiculous situations and they're making ridiculously bad choices I, i feel like the plot of so many of their films is there's one man and he's or one character and he's dealing with a world that doesn't understand him and they're too thick to like that's like every single not every but like that's that like the big Lebowski is just all of these people who aren't jiving with the the dude there that's that's uh but no- he's mocked too <laughs> yeah I mean <laughs> come on the, that that may not be your strongest film to take. <laughs> that was the first one that came to my head. I guess no. I get I get your point. It might. I mean, or look at the lady killers. Like you, Tom Hanks's character in there is supposed to be, you know, by far the most intelligent person. He's a moron. Like he's a total moron, yeah. and he's probably the butt of the jokes more than almost anyone in that film. Yeah. 
Well, I, I, I think I, I that think... might not be your best defense because that movie also <laughs> is like really creepy, weird, racist. Like a lot of the humor just comes from like black people. Like, like <laughs> I, I, no. I get what you mean. I, uh, I, I think I, 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 uh, I, uh, I get what you, I get your point, and I, uh, I concede. I concede to your point. No, you, you're, you, you, you make a good point. Um, at the very least, you can't deny that it is an issue. That because if you say they can't deal with. In innocent people being in their movies well one of their yeah. options would be not putting them in their movies it's clearly something that they want to deal with the death yeah. of innocence mm-hmm. no and I, I think probably one of the big issues for people I, I know a lot of people that don't like the Coens kind of feel like they almost talk down to their audience and I, I can certainly see how people would get that reaction I mean they're clearly very intelligent writers. They clearly like I mean, they're both, fun at a lot of stuff. They're intellectuals. Both their yes. parents were oh, yeah. college professors. Yeah. Um, well, they both like, graduated college by the time they were sixteen. Like they're one of them was a philosophy major. Yeah. yeah they're they're essentially certified geniuses. <laughs> I mean, there's not really much you can get around it. And I I think for a lot of people, or maybe not a lot, but for a, a certain segment of the population. That's intimidating, and they feel like when you have people that have clearly that are quite intellectual and have no problems hiding, you know, they don't hide it at all. That's that's intimidating, and people get defensive over that. That maybe these people don't like, you know, people that aren't very well educated. And I I don't really think that's it. I think they have this problem with like intellectual dishonesty mm-hmm. more than anything. I see. That makes sense. Barton Fink <laughs> as a film, though. It, that's that's tangentially that is part of it. Yeah, it is. It is. It's this. It's a nightmare. Is what it is. I've seen it described as a prime. I've seen people trying to interpret primarily as a satire of Hollywood. I don't. Buy, I mean, there's certainly, obviously, in the depiction well, yeah. of the studio head and the producer, there's satire. But like, so much of that film isn't trying to depict what like the idea of a studio head kissing a writer's feet like that's not that there's no there's 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 no comparison to what an actual writer in hollywood has to go through like like i think it's so much more about just the creative process and being afraid and that sort of fear of what am i right like what do i even know really and yeah and and, being lost in your own head yeah Yeah. that's Um, terrifying and the way they do it, and again, I I think this sort of like this is a film that's very uh, expressionistic, and yes. it's very like he first enters the hotel. First, it dissolves from waves crashing, and the way they angle the wave crashing shot, it looks like the waves are spreading through the hotel. Like it's very mm-hmm. much a impressionistic or a, a, a expressionistic uh, uh, a kind of editing choice, and it's this giant hotel that's like. The 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 length he walks from the entrance to the desk <laughs> is just impossible, and the huge halls of rooms that he looks down at both ends is impossible, and it's just very much. It, it's a better way of getting across anxiety than like to me. This movie is the antidote to, and I don't want, I don't mean to bring this up again, but something like somewhere or some somewhere right. <laughs> to me, if you just God. depict things as they are. That's not necessarily going to make you feel that way, as opposed to this film, which depicts things not as they are, but as a crazy heightened version of where they are. And then you get the feeling better than if he showed up and it was a busy hotel and he was just kind of lonely. You know, like yeah. touche, Patrick. He's much more mm-hmm. isolated this way than if it was trying than ever trying to be realistic. That's one of 
all across the board, that's like the strength of Barton Fink is heightening everything to 11, um, mm-hmm. but in ways that you don't expect. Yeah. Uh, Jim, Barton Fink. My God. <laughs> Barton Fink is your God. Um, it pretty much is at this point. It's my favorite Coen Brothers movie. It probably always will be. Uh, it's one of those movies that every time I see it, I get something completely different or I get something new out of it or you start reading crazy theories online about it. <laughs> like a lot of it, I, I never would have, uh, you know, associated with being about sexual repression until you read crazy theories about that. And like, well, I guess you can interpret that way. And that's what I love about some of my favorite movies are like that, you know, where, uh, somebody else will have a completely different interpretation of it. And then you sort of rethink it. Obviously I, I wouldn't necessarily go that route personally and saying, Oh, the movie is completely about sexual repression. There might be some elements to it that are there, Pointing at the wallpaper. What's uh, the wallpaper? Sexual, well, se- the- semen, and, you know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And then I mean, sounds, all kinds the sounds of-, of the couple making love in the other room. Well, and, no, the, and, and then is, him, you know. And part of his character is this weird sort of sexually repressed yeah. sort of... Um, I, I Something I see a lot on... Seeing a lot reference on the internet now is this phenomenon of guys who think they're a nice guy. And, like, the way he becomes instantly super protective. Right. Um... And uh, of uh, uh, Judy Davis's character, um, and like that's the only way he can relate to women, or right? it's just like, um, or just being in the weird possessive sense in the mm-hmm. way when he dances at the USO show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like yeah, there's elements of that, but yeah, it's I'm a saying. movie about sexual repression because there's something sticky. Well, I'm not saying that. No, I'm I know. I know you're not. I'm just saying people. There are people who, out there who will focus on about, one particular the, the, aspect and saying the, that and blow it completely out of proportion. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm just saying. I'm that. talking about the bigger idea of people who read films based on a handful of facts sure. that the film isn't about. It's just yeah. details. Oh, yeah. I know. And I know that sometimes the Coens are, you, you know, they're they're being playfully elusive, and they just do these things and they throw these different things at you to see what you gravitate towards. Well, I mean, and this is what I was talking about at Miller's Crossing. When he's handed the box, like, what that does to you as a viewer is to make you somehow, get him getting handed a box makes you just be like, oh, shit. Like, yeah. he's really it. Like, he's getting handed secret packages. What is in that? What, what, what could mm-hmm. be in that? And then, it, like, it makes you more worried for him. It has an actual reaction. You have an actual reaction as a viewer. Right. That serves the purpose of the story. It's not just symbolism for symbolism's sake. Sure. You know, it serves a function even if it even if there's no answer, which there isn't. Yeah. Hmm. No, I just think it's an incredible piece of filmmaking. Again, like Miller's Crossing, every single line is Creepy. quotable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, this movie. Yeah. What do you think? I fucking love this movie. This is one of my favorite movies. Period. Good. Um it's Chip, um, the I Chet. I, can I talk about how much I love Chet? Yes, the way he talk about emerged, the scene. Talk the way about he emerges from the bottom. I'm Chet. The, hands I'll, a I'll little hand piece you of a paper little card that says with an exclamation Chet. point. Exclamation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it! I love it. Um, 
And somehow God. the fact that he's friendly makes him creepier. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Steve Buscemi Again, being friendly to Coen you Brothers, in a large empty room. Coen Brothers approaching something in a way that you like. The obvious way is he's a like is Burton Fink is oppressed and he's alone and even the door and even the doorman doesn't like him. Right. Like. They go the opposite route. They make him super friendly, and that makes him really creepy. Like friendly to yeah. the point, he is a computer. Like yeah. he is, he doesn't know who you <laughs> he, are, yeah, and he he's fades. Barely he's part of the hotel. To you. Yeah. yeah, he's like just animated, like right. like meat. He's the he like he's like he's outgrown his purpose, and he still operate. Like yeah, it just serves this whole fucking yeah. image. And again, it's Cohen Brothers approaching something from an angle that is. Like that you don't expect, and being more effective because yes. of it. Mm-hmm. Yes, and the um, the William Faulkner character, um, what's his name? The his name is W. P. Mayhew. W. P. Mayhew. William Mayhew. Bill Mayhew. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, uh, I thought he was fantastic. Um, good especially old, because good old John Mahoney. I love that guy. Yeah, I mean, before I had seen this movie the first time, I had read about William Faulkner, and the second I saw it, I was like, "Oh my god, this is perfect." Yeah. Um, and the sounds he makes, whenever, <laughs> the scene whenever he comes to his bungalow yeah. and the, the his What's assistant. He screw- Where's my the- honey? Where's my honey? <laughs> oh, man. It's so fantastic. Honestly, and it's able to be, they're finding these moments where they can be so over the top without making the movie goofy yeah. as a whole. But, well, it helps that he's not on screen. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's just voices. It's just this sort of crazy scary voice coming from beyond like what are you dealing with right now and when the um, camera lingers on him as he goes around that turn in the road and you see him just throw the whiskey bottle <laughs> mm. oh. matt gamble barton fink uh i like barton fink quite a bit um i don't know if i would say i love it though uh, what 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 prevents you from loving it um okay jim a lot of it honestly a lot of it is in comparison to other coen brothers films like I think Totoro is better in other films. I think Goodman is whoa, whoa, better whoa, whoa. in other films. What movie is Totoro better in? Oh, Miller's Crossing, without a doubt. I think that that is a one of my favorite performances in a Coen Brothers film. Okay, is Totoro in, in Miller's Crossing? It it's probably the first time I ever recognized like actual acting range in a film. Hmm. Um, and I think he's I think he's very good in Fink, but it's a very one note performance, and I, I just think Miller's Cl- Crossing is showier, which is something that kind of the, resonates more with me. Do you think me. the film is hurt? But I mean, do you think he needed more? No, no. I think he's, pr- I think he's very good. Like, it's certainly not like he's bad yeah, by yeah. any means. I mean, like, I, it, it, a lot of you know, I like Tony Shalhoub in in The Man Who Wasn't There more than this. I like John Goodman more in The Big Lebowski than this. Like, it's a lot of okay. Now I comparison. Call. I, like, I, like that. I, I'm sorry. John Goodman in this movie is one of the like great like that. The f- uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> John Goodman in the Big Lebowski might be the greatest comic performance of all time. Yeah, but like, the thing is, he's a little one note. He's a little iconic. one note in Big Lebowski, isn't he? I, he's a little one note. Yeah. Amazing performance. <laughs> I like it's Jeff so Bridges. Good. Okay, I like Jeff Bridges that, more in Big Lebowski. John, okay, John Goodman's introduction in this movie, you are again. I right. might even like John Goodman better in Raising Arizona. Well, uh, now you're just crazy, or you're just no, I'm not. Will, <laughs> willfully, <laughs> you're just 
Hopefully. John Goodman is one of the most underrated actors of our time. Sure, agreed. Like, he's, he's, so, agreed. he's great. Like, he's fantastic. And he's very, very good in this. And I like him a lot. It, you want to it talk about a movie that, that you want to talk about realizing range. John Goodman, just in the first five seconds he's on screen, goes from like, oh fuck, what is he about to do? To like a big panda bear you want to hug. <laughs> It, it, it always has a forced feel to me, and it always has a very fake feel to me. Huh, so his reveal no. later wasn't all that I surprising. I mean, like it, it to me, it's one of it, it's. I don't know. The showiness of it is too obvious. I guess for me, it shows its seams. Obviously, which is very is... rare for a Coen Brothers film. Honest, I'll be admitting here. I'm really fucking nitpicking at this film. Like this is a really good movie. This is certainly not a bad movie, but. It, it's a movie that I don't know. I, it's I I think similar things are explored in this that are explored in a serious man. I like a serious man better. It's, it hmm. comes down to personal preference, really. Yeah, it's yeah. Not like, I, I was gonna I say, mean, I was I gonna say when it comes to acting, like obviously it's very subjective. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I can't is, tell you that it isn't forced any more than you can tell me that it is forced. <laughs> but like one of the things I love about him in this movie is that it's so net, like that he's able to go through these like to go through these extremes so naturally, and that I. So, without a doubt, believe the fact that he like is really friendly and and is really sad at the same time, just by nature of how red his face is and how sweaty he is. Like, <laughs> it's really desperate. Like, and then and then at the end of this film, when he becomes goddamn Satan, like he becomes the scariest thing you've ever seen when he's running through the hall and and he's screaming, "I'll show you the life of the mind," and you don't even know what the fuck he's talking about. <laughs> like, what? What is this? Is he, is he Barton Fink? Like at that point, you're like, wait, is he the same person? Like, what is going? Like that movie is so like that that scene is so powerful and it's so believable. And that and he gets so serious when he's like, "You don't listen because you don't listen." Like, <laughs> like he goes to through such extremes and such range, um, like. John Goodman is probably my favorite part of this movie. Uh, Agreed. So I and I definitely disagree with. <laughs> I don't you honestly my, see. Man. Here's the thing: my favorite would be Michael Lerner. I think he's outstanding in this. Oh, he's, he's, uh, he's funny. He is he's so great. he steals this movie. He he's very funny. Yeah. Kind of one note. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that note's licking somebody's foot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, it's. Of all of the sycophantic uh, sort of bullshitting producer slash studio executives in in movies about making movies that have been made, he's the best. Yeah. I'm not. I will not say a bad word about Michael Lerner um, at all. But uh, I, I mean, just the power I feel from uh, John Goodman's performance blows my mind. Um, now. Uh, does, does anyone is anyone here particularly interested in interpret? I figure you might as well ask. I might as well ask. Is anyone like really into interpretations? What it means or what 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 particular- what, the, what the ending of the film means? The box. What's in the box? What, what's in the box? What, what the hell? What the hell goes on when John Goodman becomes Satan? What does that mean? Does anyone have any ideas or? Because I mean, I think the strength of this film is that you don't need to have interpretations right. yeah but yeah. i but because it's become an internet tradition to right. come up with interpret i wonder if any of you actually- i don't really care about interpretations i just really like when someone leaves things open yeah i like I, they're really good at 
strong, ambiguous endings, both with this and a serious man. I disagree with the oh. serious man. Oh, I oh. love the ending to a serious man. Me too. I convinced a room full of uh, elderly people at the library that I work <laughs> at in our film discussion group, yeah. which I lead, that I, I turned them all around on a serious man. Well, t- turn me around. Or, I, I mean, maybe we shouldn't talk... Uh, maybe we should talk about serious man later. Um... Uh, I, I would say well, you you really love uh, uh, John Mahoney in this film. To me, that's the one part that I sort of feel it drag is that picnic scene and his relationship with uh, Judy Davis's character. Mm-hmm. Like that's to me because every other part of the movie is so good at just making you anxious and yeah. scared and not Isolated. knowing why and doing it in odd ways. And that part of the movie almost feels too mundane to me. Um, obviously, Audrey Taylor, uh, the Judy Davis's character, needs to exist so she can die, and then right. that folds back in. But like, almost, I feel almost like that. Th- that time is time wasted. I guess you could see that. I mean, I don't know. I just thought it was a fun tangent, and I enjoyed the ride that it was taking me on. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't really. We need For to me, it doesn't detract hotel. from the momentum of the movie at <laughs> right. all because the movie, most of the movie has so much momentum already that it can afford that break to for people who like I guess Faulkner I see it the other way is and it enjoy most, the. I guess I see it the other way. Most of the movie has so much momentum that it can't afford to. If that's the primary mode that the movie's operating in, it can't afford to just abandon that for. Hmm. For I mean. I don't see the bigger point of those characters or those scenes other than providing her to die later so the tension can be brought to crazy levels. Like, other than that, like, that picnic scene, what is that about, really? No, more than just your regular, everyday character interaction and comic relief. But nothing in this movie is everyday, like, anything. Everything else is more surreal and... Insane. Not just surreal, but like top notch, and yeah. like and blows your mind that they thought of it, and you're trying to figure out like how. I guess did it's like his mo- like his escape, I guess, from that hotel for a, a little while, like his. But to me, possible it, way out. I, I I would get that if those well, scenes felt idyllic, but to yeah. me, he's arguing the whole time, and he's still like, no. It he's is. Stubborn. It's about him. Connect. It's about him seeing this. This you know, he thinks okay. There's a writer who is in Hollywood, who has been doing it for a while, I'm going to find this example of a writer, and this guy is the most fucked up guy he's met. But, yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, to me, those seem very traditional, as opposed to, and not as a... Not True, it's, I mean, it's not as, as out of film. left yeah. field as, yeah. as the other stuff. I would no. agree. Well, I think part of the idea is to provide an anchor not only for him, but for the audience, that we're entering an area of normalcy before they pull the rug out from under you. And then the whole thing just goes into hell in a handbasket. Yeah. yeah, I guess. I guess to me, what I like is the lack of normalcy, and that almost feels like a breather. As I mean, not it, <laughs> it, it almost feels like uh, it's just time wasted before getting to the parts I actually like again. <laughs> sure. Um, I, I mean, I Barton Fink's incredible, and the parts that work to me are just so powerful that. I mean, and and those though I say those scenes. It's two scenes. It's one scene where they're having a picnic. Because sure. when he first meets W. P. Mayhew, that's really funny, and mm-hmm. that's really in keeping in line. Where 
this great novelist is just this fucking drunkard and you're introduced by him and just introducing someone by having them puking in a stall yeah. is just like Jesus like everything is falling apart in this town mm-hmm. like that's great but this I'm talking and the reason I mean it's the reason I bring it up is because it's the only part of the movie to me that I don't love um, but yeah just that picnic scene and sort of the scene when he's talking uh, with Judy Davis at the bung- the door of the bungalow uh, are just the weakest parts of the film for me. I don't have anything to say about that, but I just wanted to. I just reminded me of the scene whenever he finds out that Judy Davis has been ghostwriting all this shit for mm-hmm. W. P. Mayhew. I love that his reaction is not "You're the greatest novelist," yeah. but it's "He's such a fraud." Right again, <laughs> revealing revealing that he's not ni- yeah. necessarily the nice guy. Yeah. He's <laughs> how fucking self centered he is. Right. Yeah, no that that scene is great when he's like that where he keeps pacing back and forth and he starts lines and stops lines and <laughs> and uh, that I it almost it feels like really well choreographed almost just the yeah. way that like because he's going he's in focus you know right in front of the camera and he goes all the way back to the door of the room and he's pacing back and forth and all of the major lines of his of that discovery happened when he's right at the camera and then he goes, ah, and, 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 Oh, you're a great. <laughs> I love that moment. Yeah. Um, and of course, uh, the nightmarish image of slapping a mosquito and then blood just coming oh, out like Jesus. that. To me his scream straight out of a nightmare. Yeah. And I think this is like, again, there are films that are when you're feeling something, and you write it down and you're feeling it intensely, but you don't overthink it. I think mm-hmm. this is the kind of film that results. Um, yeah. Whereas Miller's Crossing, obviously, tons of thought had to go into how every... And that film works because tons of thought had to go into. This is almost... Uh, works works uh, works as an example of the opposite, where it's just all feeling and all right. emotion and not... Not stream a lot of, of consciousness. Not elaborate thought. Yeah, very stream of consciousness. Which is what I respond to in general. Mm, same here. Yeah, I really like that approach. And, you know, John Goodman running down the hall screaming, I will show you the life of the mind, might be one of my favorite moments in any movie ever. And I can't yeah. say why. I don't know what it means. Screaming life of my mind. <laughs> life of the my mind. My mind. No, that, that moment where John Goodman is, like, running down the hall screaming about, I'll show you the life of mind. Like, that's terrifying. And you don't know why. Yeah. And... I don't have an explanation for it. I don't have an explanation exact. I mean, obviously, there's the idea of John Goodman directly confronting Barton. Uh, think about being a phony and stuff. Um, but you know, like you don't you don't need to know. You don't need to have an exact key, like a legend that says what each thing means, and right. for it to be really fucking effective. I feel like I feel like that line. The this is the life of the mind is one of those times when I feel like. And there's a there are very few times when in movies and some of my favorite movies where I feel like it gets to the point where the writing is the same as like poetry I love. Yeah. And that is one of them. And John Turturro on his knees in Miller's Crossing saying, um, I am praying to you. Not mm-hmm. I'm praying to God, but I am praying yeah. to you. Like that was fucking poetry. Right. And like there are a few moments like that when it gets like to that like absolute at ten level. And I and it's that the Coen brothers reached that, that level in two different ways because this film is very not over you know, they didn't overthink it and Cohen, and uh, you know 
this film is very much just raw, get it out on paper. Right. It was the writer's block breaker. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't overthink everything. And Mart- and Miller's Crossing is very complex, and they had to think a lot about how the plot worked and how everything came together. And uh, I think that just shows how versatile the Coen brothers are. Yeah. Sure. I certainly like the, the idea of the... Uh the the painting of the woman on the wall suddenly manifesting itself at the end of the movie. Not that sure exactly actually, what it means. So um, that shot where he stares into the painting and it and it has the ocean sound effects mm-hmm. is actually, if I remember correctly, because I remember I act, I like at one point watched this movie and Once Upon a Time in the West at the same time, like right back to back. And there's a scene in that where he stares at a picture of a train and he like hears train sound effects. Yeah, I think it was a picture of a train, but it's like it's that was a reference to that to Once oh, wow. Upon a Time in the West, but. I, I beyond that I don't know what the fuck it means. Hmm. Beyond it being well, reference to I mean, other than just the base, what it serves the narrative, which is he's sure. getting lost in it and it's an escape. Sure. And yeah. even this escape is poisoned by that last amazing accidental shot of that bird just falling into the water. <laughs> uh-huh. Like it is it's a bird That's diving into the water to get food, but it looks like a bird just falling out of the sky. Like it's an right. apocalyptic moment right. almost. Uh, so it's a great mm-hmm. final image. Uh, Matt, do you have anything sort of final to add yeah. about Barton Fink before we move on? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I I do like the movie quite a bit. It's just, it would not be one of my favorite Coen Brothers films. Oh, I, I do want to say really quick, this movie, for all that it is very, like, for people make it out to be very heady and very surreal and upsetting, it is so fucking funny and consistently funny throughout. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the Coen Brothers can't help but be funny, and I like that they're able to do that without compromising sort of the tone of a film. Like, Fargo is kind of a dark film and bleak film, but it's also just hysterical throughout. Um, that's one of my like things I really like about yeah. Coen Brothers. So uh, I guess we should all talk about another Coen Brothers movie um, that we like. Uh, Russ, is there another Coen Brothers movie you'd like to talk about? Uh, I really love A Serious Man. A whole, yeah, let's a whole talk about lot. a serious man. Yeah, I'm curious to what, hear more what, about that. What is a, Matt? Uh, yes. What does a serious man accomplish that makes you like? And how does it accomplish it that makes it to you a, a greater film than Barton Fink? I think. The minority when you say that. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, I just. I don't know. I think the crisis of faith and conscience is more interesting to me than it is in Barton Fink. In that Barton is so more set that he is not really having one and convinced that maybe it's everyone else having the problem that it it's a little bit more off-putting to me i guess um i i have a harder time identifying with barton which is kind of surprising in the fact i agree with a lot especially of his feelings on writing and things like that i agree with his opinions a lot but I guess maybe I don't like the idea of associating that much with a douchebag. And that I, th- I find um, Michael Stuhlbarg's character, he's, he's a very flawed individual, which I, f- I guess to me is, is more interesting and in that he's a fairly normal person that is struggling to find his place in the world. Uh, and I find that is a, f- I, that, that kind of, question is more interesting to me you know to me a serious man is the common man play that that <laughs> barton yeah, is yeah, bitching yeah, about absolutely. um and that is where i find i find artistry in that except the world he inhabits is so ridiculous 
Well, okay. yeah, well, it's St. Louis Park. It's like right down the street from me. Like I, oh, I know that world. Say, I mean, it's not. I'm not saying the <laughs> suburb he existed is unrealistic. I'm saying the story of Job that he is going through is okay. so ridiculous that it. How can you identify? With well, it? here's the thing. Okay, so every fucking problem that you've ever obsessed over and worried over yeah. and like fretted over and like really try to figure out what was going on. Most likely, if you were to look back on where you were at that time, like a year later, you'd go, oh, well, I don't even, I didn't really get an answer. It just kind of went away. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how life is. Yeah. And that's what this movie's about. But the problem is it's every single problem that anyone would ever have in life all happening at the exact same time. And every single other character other than him being completely unresponsive to his very like there's not a single other character in this movie other than his son, which they're they're the two protagonists mm-hmm. that acts in a way that you like that is recognizable as human behavior. Like the fact- Right, because it's from his perspective and it, sure. in his yep. perspective the whole world is turned against but the him. Whole, okay, my my I, I get that and I do like a serious man. I also don't want to make it seem like I don't like this film, but it is one note hit over and over again, which is everything's going wrong, everyone hates you, nothing uh, is going right. You can kind of make this arg- same argument about Barton Fink, ways. though. No, 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 no. Barton Fink completely surprises you every time. You, you think uh, John Goodman's going to nah. sock him the first time he shows up the door, and then he turns out to be because you think Chet <laughs> is going, you know, Chet turns out to be this super friendly, like to the point of being creepy. Like Barton Fink keeps subverting that, whereas a serious man. Just you know exactly what everyone's going to be. Hating. So you're telling me when you watch the prologue in A Serious Man, you knew exactly, and those beats were followed the entire rest of the film. No, no, the, pro- the prologue is separate from the film. The first, sure, but it's also a complete change from the rest of the film. I mean, you just yeah. made the argument that it was the okay. same beats hammered again and again and again, okay. and the prologue is this whole kind of thing that's that right. stands it, it, out and literal. is a very different style and tone. Be- and I mean. A Serious Man, I think, throughout most of the meat of the film, without a doubt, is very much has a very clear theme that it's hammering at again and again and again. But at the same point, I think that where it starts and its resolution are huge changes and huge surprises that I don't think anyone would ever expect. Okay, if you want to be super literal, then just take everything I said <laughs> and then add the words except the first ten minutes. To me, that is just a prologue. Ending. It's a prelude. It isn't the film proper. Okay. It becomes very monotonous to the point where once the apocalypse comes in the form of this sort of life-destroying tornado, the only thought I had was, what took you so long? Like, I, like of course that's going to happen. To think that it... Like, when you say that that completely comes out of left field and it surprises you, I just have to disagree. Like, the first time I saw that movie, that's what I was expecting the whole time, is just, all right, when is this finally going to end? Because it keeps hitting the same thing. Hmm. I think it hits it well. I think it is very tense. I think you really do feel anxious when you're watching it, and that is what they're trying to get across. I'm just saying, again, we're talking the same way you were talking about Barton Fink being a very good movie, just not being an upper-tier Coen Brothers movie. I mean, the Coen Brothers are so good that I think, like, True Grit, which is a very good movie, is like a third-rate Coen yeah. Brothers movie. Yeah, I, I, well, no, yeah, I don't think... Like, we're all arguing yeah. over yeah. fantastic movies yeah. from really good movies. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm, just exactly. saying, I'm just saying, to me, A Serious Man's not nearly as interesting, and from a cinematic standpoint, it's not nearly as compelling, and 
from, you know, it doesn't surprise me as much. It doesn't affect me as much. There's, uh, it's just, to me, it's, it's sort of them. And it feels almost a little too, I think a lot of their later films feel more misanthropic than their early films. Well, they're um, older. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I agree. I'm just saying, I think it kind of, whereas I think Burn After Reading, which is maybe the film I want to talk about, uh, Burn After Reading, I think, really benefits from them being so misanthropic. I think it's sure. the only black, like, pitch black comedy that's also a screwball comedy. I don't know that there's any other film that marries that kind of lighthearted um, pace Doctor and tone. Doctor Strangelove? Yeah. Well, no, because Doctor Strangelove isn't a screwball. Like, Doctor Strangelove isn't, like, silly. And really? There's no fighting well, in the war room? Like, I, I think there's, there's, without a doubt, heavy screwball elements in Doctor Strangelove. I feel like Doctor Strangelove... Doctor Strange Love is satire um, forefront put in the forefront. Where sure, sure. I, I, no, I see your point. I see your point <laughs> for sure. I think, but I think if you're talking about Screwball. You're talking about Screwball as a form, and you're yeah. talking about Screwball as a way a script <laughs> is structured. Doctor Strange Love isn't that. Um, it's actually kind of an interesting comparison I never thought about because one of the other things I like Burn After Reading is because it is unconcerned with making political statements. It keeps its subtext as subtext, which is this is all. Like, it's all just how they feel about the U.S. government. In the same way that Dr. Strangelove doesn't make specific, you know, it doesn't, it isn't super specific with the way it satires, you know, America and the government. It, because it keeps its subtext, it's really effective. And I think Burn After Reading is very effective as far as just breeding this feeling of contempt towards, like, the CIA and, and the government and stuff. John Malkovich, what? Uh, oh, John Malkovich. Like, everyone in yeah. Burn After Reading is just a parade of the best performances you'll ever see in a comedy. Um, like, I yeah, Burn After Reading is one of the funniest movies of the decade. It's one of the... It, I fucking love Burn After Reading. Um, and I think that... And to sort of the way I was tying it serious, man, I think that is a way that their misanthropy uh, sort of uh, ties in well to, and, and enhances a film as opposed to Serious Man where it was it was almost too bleak and too dark for me to really get any enjoyment out of it. <laughs> um, but, I mean, not uh, that's not true. I don't want to say any enjoyment, because I like A Serious Man, but it wasn't um, as enjoyable as, say, Barton Fink or Burn After Reading or some other films. Um, oh, wow. Jim, how do you feel? It's funny, because, like, after... I think you've brought this up before. A lot of it has to do with expectations. And I remember oh, yeah, walking yeah. into Burn After Reading, I was kind of like... I don't know what I was hoping for. I don't know, not necessarily like a big Lebowski style surrealism kind of comedy or something, but I mean, coming off of something like No Country for Old Men, you're sort of conditioned to, you know, expect. Were you were you thinking, oh, the Coen Brothers are now in the world of the? Well, I mean, of the serious movie. No, I guess. I mean, seeing the trailer, you kind of know that it's not going to be a serious movie, but I think. Uh, it was not exactly what I was, you know, uh, at the time thinking, man, the Coen brothers, they are known for a certain brand of comedy and approach to their, uh, to their style. And that for me, I thought it was like, uh, I don't know. It left me cold and I didn't think it was as funny, but as time has gone on, I've gone to appreciate it I remember, I think more I got and more. mad at you because I yeah. couldn't imagine anyone seeing the final scene of Burn After Reading and not just dying. Like, to me, yeah. the final scene of Burn After Reading oh, it's great. is just one of the funniest things that's ever been in a movie. Yeah, I, I, but I, 
like I said, I think the Coen brothers are one of those incredible directors that the more I watch them, the more I love their movies. And I remember seeing The Big Lebowski for the first time in the theater, in an almost empty theater, which was shocking to me at the time, uh, because I was like ecstatic about seeing the new Coen Brothers movie because it was the movie after Fargo. Uh-huh. And Jeff Bridges is one of my favorite actors. I was excited because of the cast. Uh, Burn I, Up the Reading is almost the same as Big Lebowski as far as yeah. the way it's structured. Yeah. And I think at the time, uh, maybe it was just the sense of humor being so absurd and it sort of really appealed to my sensibilities at the time. I was just like, I ate it up right on the spot. I, I know a lot of people is like, you know, the first watch, they're kind of like, eh, didn't yeah. get it, eh, didn't make me laugh. It was definitely a film that I liked more. I loved it times, the yeah. first time in the, I saw it in the theater. I thought it was one of the strangest movies I've ever seen, but I think in terms of my sense of humor, uh, The Big Lebowski is right up there. And in, I, I know that Matt brought up you know, John Goodman's performance. I, I adore Jeff Bridges in this movie. I think it's one of the best comedic performances of all time. I love the scene of him trying to reason his way out of the situation uh, behind the limo. I think that's brilliant. I just love that whole sequence. Uh, how recursive the script yeah. is, how they mm-hmm. keep going back to yeah. lines that were picked up earlier. Right. Yeah. I, I'll never get bored of that. No. I will never get bored of them would, repeating would, the same thing and that. creating those beats. I would mm-hmm. say that, but in preparing for this episode, I definitely consciously chose not to watch The Big Lebowski again because I've seen it so much yeah. that I can't imagine no I don't mean just in that movie I mean them doing that throughout movies oh, okay. of them sure. having those 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 beats that yeah. reappear I it's I between it. that and Fargo is my most watched Coen Brothers movies I think I mean I I probably would put them in my top five or top three at the very least just because of how much I've enjoyed re-watching them and mm-hmm. how much I laugh and I think in just in terms of Again, subverting your expectations and having these weird supporting characters pop up throughout the movie, and like the 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 weird sort of Devo band with Flea in it, and like oh, yeah. I mean, just like just weird things throughout that movie that Otto just Bond. yeah, Otto Bond <laughs> just like showing up. I don't know, just like everything about it just hits my sweet spot in terms of humor. I saw um, that. I saw that. Uh, it was before I ever really started like paying attention to movies or knowing who directors were. I saw Oh Brother Where Art Thou in theaters in 2000. I was thinking I was a sophomore in high school, and then I went out and sought out more Coen Brothers movies. And the first one I got was from the library. I got The Big Lebowski, and I was just like, "Okay, I'm in. Yeah, I'm in. I'm gonna watch all of these." And then I did. Uh, Matt. Uh, you guys have kind of stolen my thunder because Burn After Reading is usually the movie I, I bring up because um, I fucking adore it. I yeah. think it is absolutely hilarious and I think it's a movie that kind of got shit upon uh, simply because it came out right after No Country. and The same way Big Lebowski yeah, from coming out after Fargo. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think one thing I don't think people realize much about the Coens and it's kind of like this this really bad I don't know, it's not really live, but just like this bad secret that everyone kind of knows is the Coens kind of alternate who does their, who is the lead on each film. Um, and Joel tends to have the darker 
tones. He tends to do more of the noir films, while Ethan does more of the screwball comedies. And I didn't so, know that. and so the idea that yes, that they kind of alternate one on on the next. Like yes, they'll do a very dark, serious film, and then they'll do a comedy. Um, and so it's it's it kind of sucks for me that Burn After Reading has been crapped on so much. Um, the other one I would probably bring up is Big Lebowski, which I think is brilliant. So now I am left now with bringing up probably a Cohen. There's there's two Cohen Brothers films um, that I really think people should watch more. Uh, one in that I think is a brilliant first half of a film and falls apart in the second half, and the other one is a noir film that I think has kind of been lost in the shuffle. Um, the first is Intolerable Cruelty, okay. which I adore. The first half of that movie, it is so, it's so fucking. Good. It's, it's so fucking funny. It is so well written. It is without a doubt a screwball comedy. Yeah. Sure. And then it kind of it run, the problem with the film is it runs out of steam and it kind of repeats gags over and over again. I agree with um, that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's certainly like the the first half of it, or at least at least the first half hour, is as good as any other comedies that they've written. I I laughed harder than I've ever laughed in a theater at the Heinz yeah. uh, Heinz Aaron. Heinz the Baron von Etzby scene. Yeah. I laughed so hard at that. Yeah. It's but, good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other movie I, I, that I really like that I don't think people, it's, it just gets lost in the shuffle is The Man Who Wasn't There, which mm-hmm. I, I really, really like this movie. I don't think it's a great Coen Brothers movie. I think it's a very good Coen Brothers movie. It's a lot of, it's got some really great. Uh, you know, Tony Shalhoub is outstanding oh, God, in it, yeah. and they've got it's a lot. It's loaded with these really, really good performances. Um, and for a Cohen, it it it's it's one of those noirs. It's not quite as goofy as Lebowski is, but it's not as straight laced as say Blood Simple. It kind of is towing the line in a little, and I think it get, got kind of lost in the shuffle. Be kind of it. It seems more experimental, I guess, for them. But it's a movie that I think really holds up pretty well and it it it's it's a really really fun film i I definitely think it's underseen i yeah i that film even much more so than miller's crossing i cannot get past the fact that the main character is a cipher yeah no i know that's the point like it's just it's really hard to engage with it um but it's yeah it definitely is underseen and definitely has a lot of good stuff in it yep okay yeah i think that's uh we're about ready to wrap things up here, guys. Um, Do you, I think- rem- you guys remember when Intolerable Cruelty and Lady Killers came out back to back and people thought the Coens were done? They yep. thought, oh, yeah. the yeah. brothers are done. Yeah, I know. <laughs> people were pretty, That's uh, pretty pissed crazy. off. <laughs> it's yeah. weird to think about now. Mm-hmm. But they were like, oh, yeah, the Coen, because Lady Killers, and then no not country- a lot came out after that. Then like, no they both came long. out in the same year, too. And then it was, oh, wow. and it was No Country, the next film? Yeah. Yeah, everybody's like, "Oh, they're back!" Yeah, yeah. I wish I could talk about No Country Old Men because that's one of my favorites. Oh yeah, we got to do top three. Yes, we do. Um, yeah. Jim, top three Cohen. Oh, Brothers I have movies. to go first. Yeah, huh? you have to go first. <laughs> oh my god. Number one is Barton Fink. Uh, I kind of want to go with Fargo for number two, and number three. This is always the tough one. Mm-hmm. 
I'll go with Big Lebowski. Okay. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, safe. mine's pretty similar. My number one's Barton Fink. My number two is A Serious Man, and my number three is Fargo. All right, uh, Matt? Uh, my number one is Miller's Crossing. My number two is Big Lebowski. My number three is Burn After Reading. Nice. My number one would be Barton Fink. My number two would be Burn After Reading. And my number three would be No Country for Old Men. Excellent, guys. Yeah. Love them Coens. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're so good. <laughs> they're just really great. I know. We could definitely do them again sometime. Uh, yeah. In the meantime, thank you, Russ. Thank you, Matt, for being on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. Yeah. We'll have to have you guys on again sometime in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So where can we find some more of your work? Matt, go first. Um... The majority of my work is at my website, wherethelongtailends.com. Um, I have a couple different podcasts there. There's the High and Low Brow podcast with me and James, where we do a theme podcast on, uh, for the most part, really kind of hard-to-find obscure genre films. Um, we've also been doing a lot more podcasts with, uh, with my girlfriend, Angela. Which uh, have which been is, great, by the way. Yeah, I've which is this. the Cabin in the Woods Film Festival podcast, in which... Uh, me as a horror fan forces her as a non-horror fan to watch horror films and then most of the podcast is devoted to her yelling at me and and telling me what a terrible person I am um and they're pretty fun they're they're a lot of fun we yeah. actually eventually tend to actually <laughs> examine the films to a degree too mm-hmm. um our last one that we just did on inside i i really really enjoyed i think yeah. it was a it was a pretty fascinating that was discussion. one of the best episodes yet. yeah yeah, I, I think it was a very interesting – for me and I hope for other horror fans to actually listen to someone give really good, strong reasons on why she doesn't like horror fa- films and why she thinks in general as a woman it's very difficult for her to watch horror films. Um, and then the other big place I can be found is over at Row 3 on the Cinecast uh, where I tend to be incredibly hyperbolic and dickish <laughs> to my co-hosts um, and have a lot of fun over there. Great show, as yep. I've said in the past. And Russ, I know that you uh, have a blog out there and whatnot. Yeah, can check so out your stuff. I, I, I have a Tumblr. It's whatmountains.tumblr.com. Uh, just W-H-A-T, mountains. You run a literary press? I, I run a, a small press. We put out books uh, <laughs> and uh, small chapbooks of poetry and fiction. Um, it's called lovesymbolpress.com. Uh, and then I am just about to put up the last issue of my literary magazine, redlightbulbs.net. Um, I'm not even going to try to give the name of my... Okay, so my portfolio for my poetry is <laughs> solar flares have been known to cause heartache.com. Oh boy, the Whoa. pains of being a poet. Yeah. <laughs> no, I want to change that. I want to change that website so bad, but I have the link too many places now and I don't know. <laughs> the the pains of being pure at heart. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Russ. Awesome. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> of course you can find me at Patrick Rapol. Uh, I, uh, my, I, I've started up my uh, film journal again. Uh, I've been writing up a storm there at Martha Marcy Nash and young dot wordpress.com. Um, so that's where you can find me with my writing. And uh, I'm so busy that you can just go to letterbox and see me click on stars to find out what I've been watching lately. 
Um, that's about as much as I can do. And, uh, oh, I'm at Twitter over at Instant Gym. So occasionally you might find me tweet as well, which is cool. Um, and obviously visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Come on. And uh, email us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, if you have good uh, LucasArts adventure game memories, email us those. I want to read them. Aww. I want to I know how many of our listeners... Just send them to Patrick's email. I don't want to read that shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just send them, to, send them to both our emails. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. And uh, next next uh, episode's going to be on Robert Zemeckis. Oh, my God. Probably going to be a more contentious episode because uh, Jim thinks Forrest Gump is good. So, uh, who knows? <laughs> Patrick... <laughs> I like all Zemeckis movies pretty yeah. much, yeah. except Christmas Carol. Yeah, so that's great. I'm Polar excited. Express is amazing. If you don't like, if you don't like Contact, though, if you don't I, like, I still no. I'm excited to see Contact because if I end up not liking that, we're gonna the fur will really fly. I'm gonna yeah. throw you out the window. Yeah, that's all fun. that's gonna happen. But anyway, so that's gonna be a fun episode. Yeah, good old Eric Childress will be joining us, so that's gonna be fun. Mm-hmm. And expect a bonus episode in the next couple of weeks because he just uh, got back from Sundance. So I'm gonna to talk to him for a quick hour and uh, see what he saw there, including the new Richard Linklater movie Before Midnight. Yeah, can't wait to hear about that. Gonna, probably gonna mention that one movie that was shot at Disney World that everyone is going oh, yeah? nuts over. Yeah, I've heard about that. It's all I've been hearing about the past mm. couple of days. That an upstream color. Nice. Can't look at Twitter anymore. That's yeah, I know. Too. Excited. Awesome. All right. Thanks, guys, for listening to the show as always. And we'll see you in a couple weeks for Robert Zemeckis. Goodbye. Bye. 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 And he goes, ah! And, 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 oh, you're a great... <laughs> Where's my honey? Where's my honey? <laughs> So he steals this movie. He, he's very funny. Yeah. Kind of one note. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? That note's licking somebody's foot. <laughs>